I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Cinematic Universe, the podcast that does for comic book movies what Audacity does for comic book movie podcasts. <laughs> I'm Joe Cunningham and joining me to help make sense of the comics behind the movies are... Seth Patrick and James Hunt. We will discuss the latest comic book movie and TV news before diving into our spoiler-filled discussion of Joss Whedon's 2000, and I haven't checked, 12, 12 film, <laughs> The Avengers, or in the UK, Marvel's Avengers Assemble. But before any of that, I'm going to ask Seven James to explain to me a real-life concept that, as a frustrated podcaster, I just don't understand. So you guys, we're all in the same room here, right? Yep. For the first time in over 12 months. Since at least Batman v Superman, and that was only for like... the first time with with recording going on since Batman v Superman. And recording is an interesting thing. Um, As (laughs) Patreon backers might know, we have been planning for some time to convene to record an Avengers commentary, which... We just we finally, finally were able to get in a room with two and a half hours to spare in front of a TV to do a commentary. I'm, I'm missing my child growing up because of this. <laughs> yeah. so the I, was... I've not read The Tiger Who Came to Tea for three days as a result of this. So. But yeah, so we're all gathered here on my sofa in, in my living room. We've just watched The Avengers. We had a great time because, spoiler alert, you guys, it's a really good movie. Um, and we recorded the commentary and then we opened up Audacity. And Audacity had decided not even to miss a small little chunk, but to kind of skip sporadically yeah, so it, through the entire thing. It, 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 it came out and it said it had been an hour and 50. And we were like, hang on, the film's longer than an hour and 50. But it was recording at the start and it was recording in the middle and it was recording at the end. And we kept so, looking up and it looked right. Um, but it turned out that what it had been doing was missing, skipping. What, yeah. Missing about one second in every four. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's mostly unusable. We are going to go back and see whether anything's salvageable. And if it is, we will stick it out on Patreon probably... Um, and we'll, we'll try and make something useful out of it. Um, we will still deliver you an audio commentary of a film. It might just be slightly delayed. For it might take us another 12 months to actually point. find the time to get in the same... Or we might just try and do it over Skype next time. Because <coughs> Who would have thought it that actually being sat in the same room would be the biggest impediment to actually <laughs> making the podcast work? But what we are still doing, we are still doing the Avengers podcast today. And it's going to be... Um, you know, a full, complete podcast, as you would normally expect. Um, and as frustrating as our recording experience was, 
we um, love this movie and there's so much great stuff to talk about and uh, we can talk about it in a different way than we did in the commentary. The commentary was like, look at that cool thing. That cool thing just happened. Isn't that cool? And now we will... Um, will be some, something intelligent. A little bit more yeah, conceptual. Yeah. We'll, we'll... You know, we've got a little bit more time to think of our gags. You can I just point out that it's half past time. 11 at night and we've been talking about Avengers for about three hours now. <laughs> so... Um, Sorry, I've had quite a lot of caffeine already. <laughs> yeah. Um, we'll move on now to discussing the latest comic book movie and TV news. So well, we're not doing it live. Let's just, let's just clear our throats before we do that. <laughs> I think... <clears throat> Because at the time that we're recording this, we have not released our Fantastic Four episode yet, and this is going to come out after our Fantastic Four episode. Yes. So you're not going to hear this until at least two weeks after, three, maybe three weeks. Hey after guys, how's July? <laughs> uh, oh god, yeah, we've got Guardians of the Galaxy uh, two to <laughs> yep. come in late April as well. At some point, you're going to hear this episode, and some news will have happened, but we don't know what that news is. Yes, we're going to reconvene and record that Through the magic of editing, we will be giving you the latest news right now. Okay, I'm going to throw to Joe. Okay, thanks, Joe, from the past. Um, This is Joe in the present, future. I mean, past for listeners as well, time and relative... We've already started confusing people. <laughs> yes, it's very, it is all very confusing. But we are here. Let's, let's see. It's Thursday, the 27th of April, as we record, and we have some comic book movie news that we need to. Uh, that we I mean, need to if talk you're about. if you're a fan of dates, then we've got more than that one for you. <laughs> we've, in fact, we're going to start off with three of them, a, a massive three of them, and um, they're all to do with Fox and the X Men. Um, Let's start off with, I think, the the least interesting one, which is that Deadpool 2 will be released on June the 1st, 2018. What do you reckon to that, guys? And, I mean, more importantly, what do you reckon to that, given that we now know that Ryan Reynolds will be starring alongside Josh Brolin as Cable? Um, I'm getting a slight sense of deja vu on this, because I've, I've just listened to you talking about this on, <laughs> on a minute. So. Um, yeah, I was. I felt... I, I, I tweeted this, and some people, I think, were a bit surprised. Well, not surprised, but they were sort of... They didn't agree when I'd said I just thought it was really unimaginative to cast Josh Brolin. And I, uh, it's nothing against him. It's just... Uh, yeah, it's like, you know, he's already playing a villain somewhere else, and it's... Yeah, it seemed... It, that made me slightly less excited for Deadpool 2 than if it had been someone more left field or someone with a bit more of a comedy background. I mean, uh, we saw um, we saw just before that news was announced that Brad Pitt was being used in kind of like concept art for the character. <laughs> and so that there had been some discussion about that and that would have been... I still would have liked Bronham, but... Uh... <laughs> And who else? We, we the talk was Michael Shannon a few weeks ago, wasn't it? And um, Michael Shannon would have been interesting. And um, your bloke from uh, David David Harbour. Yeah, yeah. Do you think? And I, I'm wondering if Michael Shannon was the name being rumoured, and now we've got Josh Brolin. Do you think that they are they have deliberately gone out of their way to cast someone who is another comic book movie villain because <laughs> because the script has jokes about it. Uh, it's that's, possible. That's it does, an yeah. option. I mean, actually, if if they made a thing out of that, that would justify it. Um, it would be a quite Deadpool-y thing to do um, because you know they can't revisit the well of making jokes about Ryan Reynolds because they've they've covered the two things they needed to make jokes about um, 
in the first film with that, which was the Green Lantern reference and the action figure. So um, they 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 need to find those jokes from somewhere. <laughs> I guess that you know that 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 stuff probably won't stop. They've got also Jonah Hex jokes they could make if if they think any of the, <laughs> any of their audience is going to remember that that actually happened. Um, the the other the other thing obviously is that this is going to be released in June and Avengers Infinity War is out in May 2018 so they it really is ideally placed if they do want to play up on the Thanos stuff that they they can do like mm. directly afterwards do you think they would though because then they'd be like if Avengers slipped like I know it's unlikely but they'd be really in the shit if they were doing that yeah possibly but I guess uh, yeah I don't know I, I kind of I'd I kind of think the, like I'd be stunned if the marketing doesn't at least play on this Oh, I'm sure it'll come up at some in some way, but maybe not in a massive way. I just sort of, I think, like, criticising the choice for being unexciting just seems a bit like, well, we, like, it's not like we're going to be seeing Josh Brolin's face in Infinity War. Like, yeah. we barely see his performance. Well, and so I it, think it might be something kind of similar in um, Deadpool 2 as well. We've already yeah, seen I think that he's, ha- he's having an entire face mold, and he's going to be part CG and. Oh yeah, I mean, he's having a face mold because they're going to have like the exposed metal on his face or whatever. Yeah. So, I think we'll see a lot more of him in Deadpool too. Certainly. Um, okay, should we move on to the two other films that at least the the announcement of dates is interesting? Um, the first <laughs> is the New Mutants, uh, which is scheduled for April thirteenth, twenty eighteen. Uh, which I believe in the calendar kind of puts it in the superhero movie calendar anyway, puts it um, about a month <coughs> after Black Panther. Um, this is the Josh Boone movie. We're expecting Maisie Williams will be Wolfsbane in it. Um, Anya Taylor-Joy possibly as magic. And the rumours have been for some time that it will be James McAvoy and um, Alexandra Ship from X-Men Apocalypse turning up. Uh, I find it hard to get excited about New Mutants. Like I was saying, well, I was saying on Twitter, like when New Mutant New Mutants was originally like created, it was exciting because it was the first sort of new generation of X Men in like ten years or whatever. But and like the first generation of trainee X Men in God knows how long. But like the movies have already given us trainee X Men constantly and new X Men constantly, and it's like what, like a New Mutants movie is essentially D list X Men, isn't it? Like that's that's the thing that sets it apart from the X Men movies is that it's X Men with characters you don't know. Does it though? I mean, they, they've they've got Josh Boone directing. Um, they're doing the Demon Bear saga apparently, so like a, an acclaimed story from that run of the comics. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. I don't know how that would translate to the movies. I I just think this whole project sounds interesting. It sounds like it is going to be pitched more young adult than than your normal X-Men stuff. And I think that after Logan, the the idea of like aiming different movies within the same universe at different segments of the audience um is is an interesting interesting thing to me. And I yeah, I'm I'm kind of I'm kind of looking forward to this one and I like the I like actually do like the confidence of Fox saying it's going to be out in April next year, which <laughs> It, it seems bold on the face of it, but you could because it's less than a year away. 
but they have been, you know, we ha- we know that Josh Boone's been working on it for some time, and it sounds like that early casting report has been has been accurate from from everything we know. So I wonder whether that they've just been quietly working on this you know behind the scenes with no one really getting too excited about it yeah i mean they could have if they've done it as more like an sort of indie x-men low budget x-men movie like maybe mm, there's something interesting that in that yeah. like sort yeah, of I, I, the problem the problem is like the reason i like those movies is because i like the characters and seeing an x-men movie without the main x-men in like it's the, the same problem i have with legion like it can be as well made as you like but i'm not going to get excited about it what if the sentinels in it though james if there are Sentinels in it, we'll talk again. But you've already <laughs> said it's the Demon Bear storyline, which, I mean, it's quite abstract. That that would be an odd choice. I, I, I think, I mean, I, the impression I get from all of this is that it may be going for more of an X-Men first class feel, but it may be even kind of, you know, lower key than that. And I really like X-Men first class, so yep. I'm probably more likely to like an X-Men film that... The thing yeah, is, though, it, those it's going to be X-Men First Class without Xavier and Magneto to angle Without it. the Xavier and Magneto thing and without the 60s setting, which admittedly were the two best things about First yeah. Class. But, so what you've got um, is the, the subplot from First Class, which I think we all agreed probably didn't need to be in there. <laughs> um, but maybe this time, because it's not competing with those things, it might. Um, <laughs> when we tweeted this out, though, there was a couple of people that said, really, New Mutants? I don't see that coming out in April next year. <clears throat> do you do we review share the lack of confidence of some of our listeners or is this it basically I, is I, is this another gambit i think they've been making it and we just don't know like yeah. i can't see them announcing a film within a year that they hadn't started rolling on i generally think the sooner um, a release date they announce for something the more likely we are to see it when yeah. they say we're going to make this film in three years time that's when i think it's <laughs> yeah. not likely yeah um, okay, let's move on to the third of the three announced X-Men movies, and um, I think it's insane that I am not excited for this in, in any way, which is X-Men Dark Phoenix, um, November 2nd, 2018, and we still think Simon Kinbo is going to direct, and uh, it's going to be telling the Dark Phoenix saga again again but this <laughs> only, time, only this time with somebody who i'm not certain can carry a movie sophie turner yeah um i i i think right so here's the thing um sophie turner i i, I will agree probably wasn't hugely strong in x-men apocalypse uh, but i don't think they gave her a lot to do and then kind of brought the phoenix stuff out of nowhere at the end of the film um, I've been watching Game of Thrones yeah, like since the you know very first week, the very first episode aired, and I at the start of that show thought that she was one of the weakest actors in the cast, and by this point, I think she's one of the strongest. So, um, what, so ideally, what we need is eight years for her to get into character. <laughs> no, I think just give her the character to play, give give her give her something to do. Um, because she's shown that she's capable, and I think she—it it might just be the accent holding her back here, but I think otherwise, <laughs> I fully buy that she could do this. Um, it's more all of the other characters around her. Like I—I I don't know that I sensed many other characters having a strong relationship with her in the rest of that cast. So when things do go up shit creek, unless unless this has a very strong s- script. Um, 
I don't think it's going to have the sense of like you know like the comics uh, as from what I know of Dark Phoenix was that it was something that was built up built up to over like years and kept being in the background and then when it did happen was this huge enormous expansive space opera that went down. I mean to be fair if they do the space opera aspect I'll be pleased because I kind of I want to see the X-Men in space but on at the same time I wanted to see an apocalypse movie and look how that worked out so <laughs> <laughs> I think we are going to go to space with this one because the for, because the first leak title was Supernova. Yeah, was obviously, Supernova. Obviously, that's not what they've gone with, but they but that was coming from somewhere, and it does chime with what we are now seeing, which is X Men Dark Phoenix. I think we are going to space, and I think we are probably going to see some a race like the Shi'ar, probably. Yep, you're going to see Lilandra, who you just learned about. <laughs> I did just learn about her. She uh, she seems very angry and moody. Is she? Is she in a relationship with Professor X? Uh, she was. They broke up. Yeah. Thanks for mentioning it, Joe. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Awkward. <laughs> I just wish. I just wish they'd reboot the entire X Men franchise. Because I just. I don't see why we have to go through the motions of trying to make it a continuous thing. Especially but, now I mean, Hugh Jackman's that's gone. What first class was kind of meant to be, and then wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> Um, then Brian Singer got interested again. Yeah, what what we really need is for Brian Singer to lose interest again, mm-hmm. and someone to come in. And I, like, I don't think it necessarily needs, especially given that you know, with Apocalypse and before that, with with Days of Future Past, they've already set up the idea of being able to brush things away with and keep the bits that they want to keep. So I just think it need it just needs a fresh. And even if even, I think even if you liked Days of Future Past and Apocalypse, and I really liked Days of Future Past and thought Apocalypse was okay, I didn't massively dislike it. But it it's like that franchise has been going on for seventeen years, and apart from two films, I think that well, they're just I'm talking about just the X Men films, not all the spin offs, mm-hmm. um, have all been done by the same person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I know. Okay, Singer's not directing this one, but he's involved. And well, it's and, just, it's, and it's Kinberg who has and it's been Kinberg involved with all the rest yeah, of us. Exactly, yeah, I mean, we don't know so that, but we're, we're assuming it up a bit. You know, um, <clears throat> I mean, the thing is, like we say it all the time, and I'm going to say it again, is that the X Men as a franchise could be as big as the Marvel Cinematic Universe if they knew how to handle it. And like they're they're sitting on a gold mine, and they just don't even seem interested in digging. Well, I mean, give them their credit. A, a couple of years ago, we probably wouldn't have thought that a schedule for, you know, the two <laughs> years would go Logan, New Mutants, Deadpool 2, um, and then and then an X-Men movie. Like, it's, yeah, okay, it, is, yeah. it is shifting, and they're doing some interesting stuff. Logan and Deadpool 2 are more ambitious within the genre <clears throat> than anything that, that uh, Marvel or DC are doing, I think. I, I think the problem they've got with the, and again, specifically with the X-Men films, not with the side films, which I think we can all agree now are a, a more successful part of the <laughs> franchise, yeah. um, because they've been able to do different things with them. But with the X-Men films, the first two, to an extent the third as well, but those films really established a particular way of doing a superhero film and for a brief time were the way to do a superhero film and and people in people's minds and i think in the average <laughs> moviegoers minds they would strongly associate x-men films with doing that kind of film 
and then the Marvel Cinematic Universe comes along, and to a lesser extent, the Christopher Nolan Batman films. But really, the Marvel Cinematic Universe comes along and approaches them in a completely different way. And that leaves the X-Men films in the difficult position of trying to follow along with what everyone else is doing or sticking with that established style. And what they've ended up doing is kind of fall in between two stools a bit. Yeah. So you get X-Men Apocalypse where some of the characters go back to dressing like they did in the first Brian Singer film <laughs> and Psylocke has a costume that comes straight from the comics and the film ends with them suddenly with Cyclops suddenly wearing his flipping sash belt thing from out of nowhere and it's just they can't make up their mind if this is an X-Men film or if this is uh, a film about the X-Men that's that's made in you know a different style and I do and that's why I think again I think why it needs that fresh pair of eyes because I think in some ways Singer is still tied to the ways he was doing these films 15 years ago and things have moved on um, okay, uh, we'll move on now to our second piece of news. Um, we probably don't need to talk too much about this because we did talk about it uh, conceptually back when uh, Split was released. But M Night, Ooh, but Sha- I do have a comment to make on it. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, M Night Shyamalan and Ding Dong has announced that Split and Unbreakable will both be getting a sequel, which will merge the characters from both films. So you're going to get James McAvoy and Anya Taylor-Joy, who we think might be starring in that New Mutants movie, um, together with Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson in a film called Glass, which will yeah be the, the merging of these, these two superhero universes. And M. Knight says that this was always the plan and it's always what he was, he was wanting to do. Um, <laughs> what do you think? I think it's very well, brave of M. Night Shyamalan to release a film that rhymes with ass. <laughs> Um, I think it's uh, very inconsiderate of M. Night Shyamalan to spoil the end of Split before it's been released on DVD and home release in this country. I believe it has just come out on DVD in America. But basically, if you didn't see Split in the cinema and you haven't yet seen it on DVD, which there isn't much chance of, because I say it's only just come out in the US and it hasn't come out over here, you've had that ruined for you. So it was a really well-timed announcement. And that might might sound like a a hypothetical situation, but genuinely, um, my dad loves Unbreakable. Like It's probably one of his favourite films. He absolutely loves that film. He had read that Split was meant to be really good and was a return to form and was really looking forward to seeing it and hasn't seen it yet because he didn't see it in the cinema and does not yet know about that ending. Has he still avoided the news? Uh, well he hasn't seen this news I went to him earlier this evening and I said if you haven't seen Split yet as soon as it comes out try and see it as soon as possible and try not to see what's been announced because it will ruin Split for you to be fair um, like it's almost like the US market is ten times the size of the UK one <laughs> no but it's just it doesn't and I looked and it doesn't come out here until like June so he's got no chance basically but I just <laughs> think I just think give it a few months at least let people catch up and especially seeing a split was a kind of word of mouth thing and it was like you know people went to see it and were like oh that was actually pretty good so it probably is more likely to get a bit more of a you know to get picked up more on on home release so yeah uh, I, I know, I it's, I know it's not the key element of the film i know it's just a nice little easter egg if you happen to know and like unbreakable but my dad is one of those people who I, I can tell that that would have been a really nice surprise for him but he's going to find out about it when he picks up like the next issue of empire <laughs> when he listens to this podcast <laughs> it's all right he doesn't listen to this podcast 
unless you can hear it. <laughs> <laughs> that would In be, which case, I've just ruined it for you. That would be an amazing <laughs> way to spoil it. <laughs> okay, um, so that's uh, Split Unbreakable. But, I do like the idea of them doing if if they're both going to be in it, which obviously I presume they are. Um, then you know, I mean, let's not talk too much about Unbreakable because I think we need we need to do a pod on it before the end of this year, don't we? Mm. But um, Kimmy Schmidt ruined that title it, though. It's been so long. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely ruined it. Well, that's the other thing. Yeah, why is the sequel to Unbreakable not called They Alive? Damn it. <laughs> well, we should actually we should quickly say like the fact that it's called Glass is interesting. Because mm. that is presumably a reference to Samuel L. Jackson's character. Yes. Yeah. So, like, are we getting a Samuel L. Jackson origin story? Are we getting a are sequel getting where a, he comes he out, gets of, out prison? of prison? Right, yeah. that, be, that was my feeling. Yeah, it's got to be a sequel. Has to be a sequel. Because oh yeah, but it might be a sequel slash origin story with flashbacks or something. Possibly, but I, I mean, the, the hero villain dynamic would will be interesting as well because obviously, like Bruce Willis is set up as a hero, Samuel L. Jackson is a villain, um, and it sounds like. McAvoy mostly a villain, but has all these different personalities. So who knows? So I think the thing that, that um, I think there's another thing that's really interesting about this is Unbreakable came out in 2000. I don't know if it came out before or after X Men, but the point is, it's a film that was made before the superhero movie boom. And now there's going to be a film about these two characters after the yeah. uh, 15 year superhero movie boom has been in effect. <laughs> And you would have to imagine that anything that they do with, like, particularly with the character of Glass, is going to play on that. And that it might be <laughs> as much a movie about superhero movies as the first one was looking at superhero comics. They should get I Michael, so, Michael anyway. Keaton in as Birdman. <laughs> God, we, are firm, all up. we are firmly in the postmodern uh, section of the superhero movie boom, aren't we? With this and Deadpool yeah. and... <laughs> Yeah, we're we're we're, start, we're starting to explore deep inside the souls of these uh, comic book movies. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so uh, we are going to get that sequel, and uh, yeah, it sounds like we're looking forward to it. And we'll we'll have to try and get to Unbreakable at some point this year on the podcast, I think, because mm. I don't. We're going to need to leave a decent gap before Split. Well, well, maybe we'll have to do Split as well, and then Glass. <laughs> We've got to, got to get to all of them. Right, okay, but now on to DC, and DC announced that they are launching a streaming service next year um, that will basically have the third season of um, an animated show that they're already making exclusively on it. Uh, But the main news is that they are doing a live-action version of Titans, um, and, and just the- just to actually to pick up on uh, one thing, it's. uh, it's not so much that it's the third series of a show that they're already making. It's the third series of a beloved show that got cancelled a few years ago. Right. So okay. it's a revival. So that's kind of why people are quite excited about Young Justice because there are people who love that show and it got cancelled and people thought it was quite unfair that it got cancelled and then it's coming back a few years later. Well, so. I mean, this this might be a mini can you explain a comic book concept, but I get so confused with DC when I hear <laughs> Young Young Justice and Titans and Teen Titans and they all seem to have bloody Robin in them. And, <laughs> I, like, I, I don't... I don't know what the difference is between them. So, like, who are the Titans? What What's this show going to be? Okay, well, so the, so the Titans, for starters, the Teen Titans have been around for a long time. The Teen Titans are basically the kid version of the Justice League. That was their initial... They were their sidekicks, weren't they? Yeah, it's, so in the 60s, would it have been? I can't I don't know when, I can't remember exactly when they formed, because I don't know too much about the earlier stuff. But it was Robin, Wonder Girl, 
Aqualad and Speedy <laughs> and Kid Flash um, with, right. the, with the Teen Titans. But they're um, not they're not the Teen Titans on Teen Titans Go, are they? So which is the no, only, some, only version? Some of, of them are, and some of them aren't. Yeah. So Teen Titans Go is more inspired by the most popular uh, run on the Teen Titans, and I'm sure I must have talked about the Marv Wolfman and George Perez Teen Titans on this podcast. Before. Yeah, I'd be amazed if I haven't. So that's an early '80s series that basically took a slightly older version of the team but still they were still teenagers but you're talking like college age teenagers um and basically it was dc cynically going oh boy people sure like those x-men comics let's do something that's exactly like them and to be fair to them it succeeded because they were really <laughs> like x-men comics but but with dc characters and they were massively popular and that's where deathstroke comes from and um yeah, it's where Robin became Nightwing partway through that run. It's where Starfire comes from. Um, Beast Boy, a.k.a. Changeling, as he was back then. Um, although I think he started in the Doom Patrol, but that's where he became kind of popular. Um, it's a great run of comics, and it makes total sense to do a, a TV series of some form based on it. Um, my concern over them doing this particular one is that um, Akiva Goldsman is going to be writing Dick yeah. Grayson again, which makes me wonder if we've wow. learned the lessons of 20 years ago. Um, but uh, uh, Akiva I mean, Goldsman, he's, he has me terrified of what they're about to do to the Dark Tower on the big screen. Uh, <laughs> which, um, incidentally, and still doesn't have a trailer. It's released in like two months and there's no trailer. I'm really worried about that for you guys. <laughs> it's, not, it's not superhero related, but it is my favourite book franchise and or my favourite book series and I'm terrified because I think, I think they're going to fuck it up. <laughs> um, but yeah, so and so Young Justice, just to, to bring swing back around to that, is Young Justice was basically a 90s version of the Teen Titans because at that point the characters who had been the Teen Titans had got older but were still the Titans and they just tended to call themselves the Titans by that point. Um, and DC wanted to do a new young superhero equivalent of characters series. So Young Justice started and um, that was that had Robin in it, but it was the Tim Drake Robin. It had a Kid Flash, but it was Impulse, uh, Bart Allen. Superboy, the Connor Kent Superboy was in there. There was a new Wonder Girl as well. So it was a similar sort of thing, just with a different name. And that team that was originally Young Justice, eventually became the, the newest version of the Teen Titans, essentially, like kind of in about the mid-2000s. I think they actually renamed themselves the Teen Titans. Um, right. So, I mean, yeah, the, the premise of the Teen Titans is basically it's the kid sidekicks. But this um, is just called Titans, so is that just the kid, si- kid sidekicks but a little bit older now? Well, the, the, the synopsis for this suggests actually that it is going to be about a team of young heroes and like young up and coming heroes in training. So I think it's still going to be more like a Teen Titans setup. I think they don't want to call it Teen Titans because A, it's a bit of a silly name and B, it does have that strong association with the, with the cartoon Teen Titans Go because yeah. that was really popular. And I think maybe they just, you know, don't want to too closely link it to that if it's going to be quite different. So, the interesting thing is, um, so you, you mentioned Akiva Goldsman already. The other main name attached to this is Greg Belanti. And Greg Belanti is obviously the kind of the guy who is in charge of all of the other DC shows. He's he, He's got basically any DC TV show seems to have Greg Belanti's involvement <laughs> in it. He's, he's himself a he's little a, bit thinly now, isn't he? He's an exec he? producer on Riverdale as well. 
Yes, yeah, he is. <laughs> he's he's on Riverdale. Yeah. He's he's on Riverdale. Yeah, because it's funny that Riverdale's got Blake Neely doing the musical. But also, like that's the funny thing about Riverdale that it's based on Archie comics. But because it's a CW show, um, Archie has DC comics posters on his walls. <laughs> um, and yeah, it, it's weird. That show feels more like it's in the DC TV universe than anything else. Mm. Archie would have um, DC comics on his walls, though, wouldn't he? That's exactly Archie. <laughs> what are you saying about people who like DC <laughs> comics, James? <laughs> You, hey. well, think of all the messages we're going to get on Twitter from people who say we hate DC. Thanks to you. Thanks <laughs> to you claiming that slur that Archie would like DC. That's such a horrendous insult to DC. Let's pivot back to the DC shows. Um, the, the fact that this is on its own streaming platform suggests that it's kind of experimental and ambitious in, in a different way anyway. It's a, it's a little bit like what CBS are doing with um, Star Trek Discovery. Um, being that we live in the UK, I imagine this will show up on either Amazon Prime or Netflix. <laughs> so we we <laughs> probably don't need to worry. <laughs> yeah, so we probably don't need to worry about about uh, about subscribing to a DC only platform. Uh, sorry, America, you are you are you are the testing ground for all of these segmented uh, streaming services. <laughs> I'm, I'm not I'm not the only person to say this, by the way. But is it not a little bit annoying that DC are doing a, a a subscription video platform before they do a subscription comics platform. (laughs) Yes, you're right. That is annoying. (laughs) I I say that as someone who has to read DC comics for the podcast and it's not as easy as Marvel comics. I can tell you that for free. Um, But you can't get them for free. Yeah, exactly. Um, Okay. Let's pass back to um, Joe and Seb and James in the past. Back over to you guys. Thanks past. No. Thanks, future Seb and James and Joe. You did a great job with that future news. It was you know a shame what? about Seb's accident. I, I'm, I was, I'm really pleased to learn that we're all still alive <laughs> several weeks from now. And because I can't believe... It being 2017, uh, that's not necessarily a given. And I can't believe they finally started production on the Gambit movie. That's <laughs> yeah, fascinating. Um, and that, that, that casting decision for the Venom movie, I was, just, I was sceptical about that film, but... Now, now they've got Sophie Grace back. It's, yeah, it's, well, just, it's probably gonna it's probably gonna be fine. And a Tank Girl sequel, we just didn't see it coming. <laughs> yeah, with with Laurie Petty as Tank Girl. Oh, God, right. imagine if any one of those had come true. Our <laughs> listeners, our listeners are just like guys. We we we've heard the actual news. Move on with your bit. We will move on from our bit, and we'll move on to a spoiler-filled discussion of Joss Whedon's The Avengers. So let's let's take a listen to some of that movie. Probably probably the first trailer. What do you reckon, yeah, Seb? The first trailer for the movie, which was pretty cool. Uh, so we'll take a listen to that trailer, and then we will be back with our spoiler-filled discussion of The Avengers. You were made to be ruled. In the end, it will be every man for himself. What do we do? We get ready. There was an idea to bring together a group of remarkable people. So when we needed them, they could fight the battles that we never could. Gentlemen, what are you prepared to do? 
No offense, but I don't play well with others. Big man in a suit of armor. Take that away, what are you? A uh, genius, billionaire, playboy, philanthropist. <laughs> Okay, the Avengers, you guys. We've just watched it. We've <laughs> just we've just sat down and had our uh, our commentary discussion. Um, I have been on the record in the past with that. I think this is my favourite superhero movie, and it must be. It must be. I know it's not your favourites. I don't think either of your like absolute favourites, but it must be close up there for you. I think. It's, as well as being one of my favourites, it's also one that I think is technically perfect. Like, there's very little you can do with Avengers that could improve it and make it in any way a better superhero movie. There's quibbles, I think. the small quibbles. Yeah, there are small bits, but, like, like personally, my favourite MCU film was probably Iron Man 3, but that's very much because I'm a fan of its idiosyncrasies. <laughs> Not because I think it is as technically... Like well constructed as Avengers is. I think what's interesting is there's a lot of Marvel movies where we can sit down afterwards, and not just Marvel movies, superhero movies, where you sit down afterwards and you go, "Oh, don't you think that would have been a more interesting take <laughs> on this property to take it in that direction?" But I think I can have quibbles about like, "Oh, I I kind of wish that 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 scene was still in there that might be on the deleted scenes, or I wish that they'd." Uh, maybe not mind-controlled Hawkeye for the first half of the movie, <laughs> given that we don't really know him. Or not unmind-controlled him for the second half. <laughs> <laughs> but what But what I don't think I could do is say, here is what would have been a better take on the Avengers, following on from the movies they've done before, yeah. and leading into the movies that come after. Mm-hmm. Because building on the Iron Mans, bringing in Ruffalo instead of Norton after Incredible Hulk... Uh, following up on Cap and Thor, uh, First Avenger and the first Thor, Thor movie. All of these characters kind of coalesce in a great way here, and it also gives, I would say most of them, maybe other than Thor, a real obvious through line to carry on after this film as well. I mean, yeah. this is a film that has to do something that... Like, there's no precedent for this film. And it there? changed cinema. It changed yeah. blockbuster <laughs> cinema. In a very real way. Yeah. I mean, it was the money that changed it, wasn't it? Like, the fact that this... Was it the first to break a billion, or was it second? No, it wasn't. Avatar? It wasn't the first. No, because both... What, maybe in the US? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Domestic. Yeah, possibly. But it made... I mean, it made a huge heap of money. Yeah, and now, like... You can't, five, move, it, you can't move for a shared universe, yeah, can you? Yeah, five years mm. later, every, like, Transformers are doing it. Like, DC are trying to do it, but they're trying their hardest. <coughs> just... I mean, you just... I mean, it is... Hasbro doing it. <laughs> Like King Kong's doing it. It, it coined the phrase, and like 
<laughs> we know you don't. <laughs> what phrase is that? I mean, I, I, so I sometimes slightly regret that uh, we. Uh, I, I liked the the meaning behind our name when I came up with it initially because the idea was that it was meant to represent a whole universe of cinematic things. I don't think I really gave enough thought to just how indelibly associated with Marvel that phrase is. Like, you do people, even though it's been used to describe other things, people do think of Marvel when they hear the word cinematic universe. And when if you Google for our podcast, it comes up alongside a bunch of Marvel cinematic universe podcasts. And <laughs> that was not the intent. I'm sure, didn't, but, I, want to, didn't I want to have another word in there? You wanted to call it across the cinematic universe. Yes. yes which is not, can it, you imagine having said that, like... 120 times or however many it was uh, basically just a Beatles riff I think (laughs) (laughs) and people would have been confused why our podcast had nothing to do with the Beatles we did get a Beatles reference into our Fantastic Four episode though so that was nice we did Um, also it was basically like I said across the universe across the cinematic universe and you guys were like that's like the Facebook. Yeah, yeah. Call it face, just call it Facebook. It's cleaner, mm-hmm. and, but, and so you guys. I mean, it was better, just, my, it's better than my suggestion of Batman sucks. Yeah. <laughs> the Zack Snyder fan cast. Uh, I bet that does exist. He's got some pretty rabid fans. Mm. Um, no, but I mean, but the point is, is that it, it you know, uh, it coined a piece of what is now a piece of movie language. You know, the phrase cinematic universe didn't exist before, and now it's on the whiteboards of studios everywhere. Going, yeah. How can we turn Speed Racer into a cinematic universe? <laughs> and I would say, I would say, for good and bad, because some of it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's like anything in Hollywood. Someone does something right, and everyone else tries to replicate it, and it, and it isn't the model for everything else. The reason it's the model for Marvel is they've literally got this universe pre-existing <laughs> in the comics. Yeah. These characters interact. You can do it on a big screen. They've done the R and D. And as we talked about, I think back on our first Iron Man podcast, these are kind of the characters they got left with. They didn't have a choice. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it kind of had to be, like, cobbled together somehow. (laughs) It just turned out that Iron Man, by the time this movie came around, was already a sensation. Like, people Mm -hmm. loved that character in that role. Yeah, I think I said it before. Like, the the idea that my parents would know who Iron Man is... Like, when I started reading comics, just that alone would have been crazy. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm someone who got into comics through my dad, but the idea that my mum would be a fan (laughs) of Bucky Barnes (laughs) is about the most insane thing I could possibly imagine. In terms of this line-up here, you've got Iron Man, Robert Downey Jr. is the star. Hulk has cultural cachet, even Mm. if the Incredible Hulk wasn't a big financial hit. Neither of Thor or Captain America really broke through. They did well. They were they were well received. They were liked. The characters we we've spoken about that. They got the central characters. But right. neither of those films would have spawned the plan to do an Avengers no. if they'd been the first yeah. one. I think the plan was there as soon as they had those characters in paper. They went, okay, Marvel, we're making movies ourselves. Yeah. We would like this to lead towards the Avengers. In fact, if you go back and look at a very early Comic Con footage, Kevin Feige is there saying that. We would like this to build mm. towards. Obviously, these characters on paper. When you look at them, it would make sense that we would get there. <laughs> and I think the fact that Iron Man's a hit made it happen. But you've got these. You've got these characters who don't aren't necessarily like the most obvious ones that you would want to do a Marvel Avengers film. I think probably because they're not the biggest stars on paper. You're missing even if they're not like iconic in terms of. Um, the actual like original Avengers lineups or whatever, but you're missing your Spider-Mans and your Wolverines mm. and all that kind of stuff. Those are, you know, I mean, like we've said, we must have said before, those are the characters that 
Marvel sold off because they were the ones that were valuable and, yeah. Yeah. and had the... Like, by their very nature, the ones Marvel were left with were the ones nobody yeah, wanted the, to buy. The well, or the ones that people bought and, and couldn't get a couldn't film off the ground. Yeah. Yeah. Or got a film <clears> off the ground and it didn't succeed. Mm. So what we're left with is this. And then Joss Whedon gets brought in as a guy who has had fantastic, fantastic success on TV um, with Buffy and produced a film in Serenity that was a spin-off from Firefly that showed he was capable as a writer-director for the big screen, but didn't really financially work. And then was kind of in this, like, cycle of film doesn't... Well, a TV show doesn't really hit off the, off the screens after a season. He's come up with this new idea. He's attached to this film. He's been taken off it. And it seemed like Joss Whedon's career was petering out. He was about to make Wonder Woman and then they mm-hmm. read the script and decided he was not about to make Wonder Woman. But then Kevin Feige takes this absolute, and Marvel Studios said this absolute flyer on Joss Whedon, which I think every nerd in the world goes, God, that's perfect. But I bet every financial bod at, <laughs> at Disney and Paramount must have been going... In fact, I'm not sure whether it, I think this was this probably was in production when it was still Paramount and then. Yeah, yeah. I mean, e- e- even as a nerd, like okay, Joss Whedon as the writer on it is one thing, you know. Joss I, Whedon as director, but yeah, there was nothing about Joss Whedon as a director in his previous work that would have made me think, oh, he's he's the man to take this on. I think Serenity is the thing that you know it, it came together as a coherent film but it wasn't a mega budget affair or anything mm. like that for a film well that's like what that. I mean yeah I'm not, I'm not saying that Joss Whedon had shown himself to be a bad director I just mean you would imagine that in much the same way as we talked about when we talked about Matt Reeves coming on to the Batman and Batman <laughs> is a character who feels like he has to have a director where the director is the guy you've, re- you've mm. heard of and is a really or the woman you've heard of um, and you know it's, it brings something to the table what does Joss Whedon bring to the table as a director now as it turns out Avengers is where he showed us what he can bring to the table as a director <laughs> and it be but I wouldn't have thought that before Joss Whedon when he started out <clears> in Buffy <throat> literally was such a bad director that they kind of had to reshoot the stuff that he did he really has <laughs> learned his craft as he's been going along through his TV shows um, Un- unlike Kevin Smith who always you know do, always <laughs> felt like Kevin Smith deserved to be able to direct his films because he'd written them and, and they were his thing but he never had the craft as a director and I think he'd readily admit he's not the best director in the world <laughs> but I think he's at least I think at least now that his now films aren't, TV aren't good well I don't think his I don't think his material is as good anymore but at least he's showing some visual ambition with them mm. um, but, but that's, that's, that's yeah. a Kevin that's a Kevin Smith tension yeah <laughs> But so we that's like the Avengers. So this is this is the position we're in, where we, I think, probably going into this film, had seen all the individual elements and liked them. Mm-hmm. But there were a bunch of people who hadn't and had probably just seen Iron Man. And I mentioned this in my commentary that I was in the screening. I saw this film, I think, four or five times in cinemas. I loved it, and I remember being in one particular screening where there were some people sat in front of me, and it was during the helicarrier scene where. They were kind of talking about, oh no, uh, Black Widow's chatting to, chatting to, uh, talking to Loki and she finds out that he wants to unleash the Hulk. And that was the point where the girl in front of me turned to the person she was with and said, is he supposed to be the Incredible Hulk? <laughs> and we're like an hour into the film at that point because it hadn't been made explicit. It was a different actor I playing mean, the character. I, I, I do get that, but equally I don't. 
I mean, it kind of had been made explicit in the film by that point. There is a point where Tony Stark says, I particularly love the way you turn into a big green rage monster. <laughs> I think they probably just missed that those couple of metaphor, lines of dialogue. That, that could have been a metaphor. He's just some angry It dude. could have been. But also, he's on the posters. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. But um, I, think, I think it's an important point in that they don't, like, Joss Whedon approaches it as if, this is a film he's building from the start. So yeah, it's not totally. like... We, I mean, again, we, yeah, we, we, did, we looked at it as it was happening yeah. when we did our commentary. Sorry, guys. Like, <laughs> but they de- he develops the film as if he's building his characters from scratch. There, there is only one not. character that the film assumes that you're yeah, familiar and with, Iron and it's Iron Man. <laughs> and even yeah. then you get, like, a small little catch-up. Like, yeah, Thor and Loki <laughs> had a catch-up about what happened in Thor. We get a literal montage of moments from Captain America... Um, Hulk we get the chat with Black Widow which kind of alludes to stuff that has come before even though the Incredible Hulk feels almost entirely inessential to what's going on here um, and yeah and then and, and so we, we I kind mean, of get I, a little I, I imagine we, we get a slight pricey of the fact that we get this, the, the minor addressing of the you weren't going to be in the Avengers thing but I think with Iron Man, it's just more about... It's not about what's establishing what's happened to him previously. It's just giving you a little reminder of who he is and what he does. You know, we first meet him with that underwater scene. Um, he, you know, So that shows his technology. He flies back to Stark Tower. It shows yeah. his relationship with Pepper. It shows what he's doing with his business. It's like you get a sense of Iron Man is a rich guy in a powerful suit that's technologically advanced. Um, but you don't need to be told what happened in the films Iron Man 1 and Iron Man 2 the way you mm. kind of do with the <laughs> other characters. Did, did they know what happened in Iron Man 2? <laughs> I mean, really. <laughs> I'm assuming, though, that most people coming into this film had either just seen Iron Man films or not hadn't seen any of them mm. or had maybe seen like the Iron Man and, well, Iron Man and one other. There, there will have been a section of the audience that had seen everything. Um, yeah, do you think... Anyone came into Avengers without seeing any of them? Oh, I think there will have been people, yeah. Yeah, yeah I think there absolutely there will have been people. And we should I talk- mean, if there were, I mean, we can't really judge because we have far too extensive knowledge of these characters <laughs> beforehand. It feels to me like the film does a good job of saying Actually, who I tell these you characters who, are. Um, Nikki went into Avengers having not seen any of them, certainly not in the cinema. Mm. She might have seen maybe Iron Man watching it with me but that was definitely the first one she saw at the cinema but we should we should also make a point like the the fact that this is called Marvel's Avengers Assemble in the UK and I'm, I'm not sure whether any other territories but speaks to the fact that the people in the studio making this movie were worried enough that UK audiences were going to con- co- uh, confuse <laughs> this film with the you know Diana Rigg. Diana Rigg. See, I think the worry was Steve more that people would not... Yeah. Not that they would confuse it with the TV series, but that they would confuse it with the 1998 film adaptation well, yes. and go, oh, God, they haven't done another terrible adaptation of The Avengers, have they? To be fair, when when Avengers came out, I said to my mum, I was saying Avengers, and she thought I meant yeah. that version. Yeah. So it's not beyond... like, And as we've covered already, she now knows who Tony Stark is, so it's not... Mm. You know, it's not like it 
it didn't happen. Like it did happen. It happened yeah. to me. It, true life stories. It happened to me. But I still think they could have just called it Marvel's Avengers. Yes, I I, I would absolutely agree. <laughs> I, so Avengers Assemble is a horrible title. Although, as we pointed out during the film, <laughs> the title drop. We watched it. We watched it on a American Import Blu-ray because I have the briefcase version that comes with all the films and the Tesseract inside because I'm a nerd and they didn't sell that in the UK. Um, and it comes up like Nick Fury says oh, like someone says like Nick what do we do next and Nick Fury kind of looks into the middle distance pensive and up on the screen flashes the Avengers Avengers Assemble is cooler and as you mentioned Seb that's the that's the drop that we actually get at the end of yeah, Age of Ultron. Ultron yeah yeah which yeah in, in America that only means something to you if you know the phrase from the comics but in the UK you know the first film was called that so it's actually more relevant <laughs> yeah. so that's nice um, let's go back to the start, the very start of this movie, which is, um, which I think almost all of us had kind of forgotten was the opening scene, which mm. is the uh, Chitauri, what's he called, the leader? No, the other, the other, the Chitauri, the other, played by Alexei Denisov of um, Angel Married Faye. to Alison Hannigan, married to Alison Hannigan, and as we say, this whole incestuous Joss Whedon universe means that we get Alexei Denisov in this who is married to Alison Hannigan, who works with Kobe Smulders in How I Met Your Mother. So now Kobe Smulders in this. There's a lot of crossovers between How I Met Your Mother and the Whedon-verse at this we point. thought just occurred that we spent a fair amount of time on the commentary going, why hasn't so-and-so done a, a superhero movie? Why hasn't Neil Patrick Harris done one? <laughs> well, Neil Patrick Harris has got Doctor Horrible. I was going to say. We'll get to that on the pod at some point. We're going to do a sing-along pod. Oh, we have to get Sarah on if we do Doctor Horrible. <laughs> I can't wait to do that. But anyway, I digress. Um, so we get that opening scene, which is kind of, it's again, it's kind of like, it's the sense that Loki is going to be the villain, but there's someone else pulling the strings. And it doesn't really play into things. And it kind of feels it's, like a bit, of a, a bit disconnected. It's one of those things where, like, people tend to forget what happens in the start of a movie. I saw Brendan talking about this on Twitter. Um, and he was saying... Brendan Connolly? Yeah. Yeah. Brendan Connolly. There was a... Uh, film he said specifically use that to its advantage and I think that it's not being used as a trope here but it's sort of it's that thing of we're going to check you some information straight off the bat but ten minutes in you're going to have forgotten that scene existed <laughs> and it kind of will be relevant at the end because Loki will be taken out 20 minutes before the film ends and there's still going to be stuff to do and people mm -hmm. to save and Chitauri to stop and You've got to remember that there is a that there is a bigger purpose behind this other than just Loki wanting yeah. to rule over Earth. Um, but yeah, we're not really going to dwell in any of that. And so then what we do is we hop to Nick Fury and Hawkeye and Eric Selvig in a S.H.I.E.L.D. facility and Maria Hill kind of talking about what they're going to do with the Tesseract. Mm -hmm. And again, that kind of feels disconnected other than that it's the appearance of Loki. Mm -hmm. But it kind of again beds in the idea that they're working with, they're using the Tesseract, they're trying to develop weapons through... Shield that are based on Hydra Tech, the Tesseract, that are recreating the weapons that Hydra used during the war. <laughs> and, but all of that kind, of, all that stuff, kind of seems background and tangential. Mm -hmm. And the scene itself kind of feels like wheel turny, getting getting stuff into place so we can actually start the film. And so there's a car chase, and it's kind of a forgettable car chase, mm -hmm. as like, most car chases. It's are. just kind of well, it's a it's a car chase through tunnels. While they try and non-descript yeah. tunnels, and and so we kind of get through that first five minutes. And I said, I remember sitting in the cinema the first time round, going, "This is 
okay, but I was really excited for this film, and I'm kind of yawning through the first five minutes. <laughs> then, but then we get going. The title card comes up, and then it's like, okay, we are going to meet our heroes one by one by one. Um, it's going to take a while for us to get to Thor, but we get we get all of those nice introduction scenes, and that's when I think the weed and stuff really starts to pop. Well, I was saying when we were doing the commentary, I was saying on that how I like the opening scenes all kind of lead into one another conceptually. Yeah. Like if you if you watch them, there's some really clever editing. How the next line of the last line of dialogue always sets up and contextualizes the scene that follows, which is quite a a comicsy trick. Mm, you you yes. have writers who really like to do that. Um, there's um, on uh, Jerry Ordway on Superman comics always used to really like having. The last line, half of it would be at the bottom of a page. Yeah, no. You turn the page, and the first caption would be the completion of mm. that line from the previous scene, <laughs> while the panel was the next scene, and it would lead in in some way. So, do you think? Yeah. Do you think there is that? Then it is an important thing that Joss Whedon is someone who understands how to write comics, and that translate hit, translates here. It certainly as well. helps, like because yeah. Whedon had just come off. Or fairly recently, come off doing his X Men run. Yeah, which actually went on for a pretty good while. It was a good couple of years. I know. I know he had a break right at the end where the last issue took about. Well, that six was John Cassidy taking yeah. a long time to draw. It was but two, it was years. two he years. He did twenty four issues. Yeah. yeah, plus a giant size finale. Which for him on a comic is quite well, long. For anyone on a comic is quite yeah. long. And I'm, I'm jumping out of time here, but you guys were talking about how when we get to that final action sequence and there is that show-stopping sequence where we start down on the ground and Cap is fighting some Shatari and Iron Man swoops in and joins him, helps fight him, fires his blaster at Cap's shield. Mm-hmm. We then go up in the air and uh, Iron Man flies past Hawkeye who's shooting some arrows. <laughs> Hawkeye shoots an arrow, we follow the arrow, it goes into the big Chitauri, like dragon monster that's going through the street, yeah. and Hulk's on top of it, drag it, like smashing things, and then Thor flies into shot, Hulk smashes something down into it, Thor puts the hammer through it, and oh, and I've even missed out the Black Widow bit where she's riding on the back oh, of yeah, some yeah, of yeah. the Chitauri. And yeah, that's how it starts. We, yeah, and we've got, yes, and we've gone through that entire sequence with all these cool individual little things, and I, uh, for me, that's the single best like action sequence for it. It's probably not a single shot because it's all put together with CG and whatever. And like, <laughs> but that sequence is the best that action cinema has got for me. And you were saying it kind of works like a comic because <laughs> in a comic you'd have all those as individual panels, and Joss Whedon almost brings the comics alive. Or even as individual moments on a double page splash yeah. or something. And it's like it's you know it's not. It's not unusual for a film to have a long tracking shot like that. Mm. Plenty of really good, really famous examples of, of long shots. My personal favourite would probably be Goodfellas or uh, Touch of Evil opening. Goodfellas, the scene one. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Touch of Evil, the big opening crane shot. But usually... Atonement has a great one. Yeah, but when you're doing them in film they're usually about following a character yes. or an object because mm-hmm. that's because that's the, the the language of film and it's 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 following that one element around and the scenery around it changing this is unusual for a film because it's a long tracking shot that jumps around a bunch of i mean again it's one sequence but it goes from character to character and from place to place and the movement manages to feel natural not like if you were if you were doing Usually, if you were doing that particular sequence of events in a film, you would be cutting between them. 
but instead it does it as a, as the long tracking shot and yeah it just it's it's kind of hard to describe but in in the brain of a comics reader it just evokes that effect of reading an action sequence your eyes are moving between the panels yeah. and you mm-hmm. you have the sense of motion and movement in your head even though they're still frames yeah. and Joss Whedon is able to actually translate that to film yeah but what's so great about it and we are fully into the third act action sequence here we've blown our loads <laughs> so early but it's so good yeah but as I say you know we've been talking about this film for <laughs> four hours now so but you know, what I think is fantastic about that particular sequence in context of the larger third act action scene is that it gives you a sense of the geography of how the fight is taking place who is where who's doing what how do their powers interact and that's that again I mean uh, we could talk about it in these films so often about how easy it is for the action to become unclear oh yeah and if this was Michael Bay uh, then it would just you know I mean the Transformers uh, films are the almost the exact opposite of how like if Avengers is the perfect example of how to do it. The Transformers mm. films are the total opposite because you're just watching those with no clue what's happening. Yeah. I mean, it looks like, it's like like metal shards flying your face. But here, you know what everyone is doing. You know where they are. You know where they are in relation to each other. You know what their jobs are as part of this fight. Mm-hmm. You know when one character leaves one spot and is going to another spot, where they are going and what they're trying to do. And what is particularly great about all of this as well is that it's taking part in New York City, a New York City that you recognise the geography of, you and you kind of, like, you, you pan back for these big, like, cityscape shots, and then you're down on street level, on a street that you kind of recognise, there are landmarks yeah. in the background, and I think this is, this is like one of the great modern day New York movies, and it manages to do all of this, I would say, without at any point making you think, oh, 9-11. <laughs> and that does like the amount of the amount of like action movies set in New York doing this big scale destruction that either explicitly reference it or can't avoid the comparison. Yeah, it's become quite an uncomfortable trope at times, hasn't it? Because like it feels like the the visuals have been metabolized, but not the like cost of it. Mm. But um, I would say as well, what is what is notable about that third act, and like this ties into it being able to avoid the nine eleven comparisons, is as tough as it gets and as like as some as you know like the fight gets pretty gnarly for some of them like they they get beaten up as the thing progresses Iron Man nearly dies it feels relentlessly upbeat mm-hmm. like the sun is shining when all of this is happening and we have Cap in his gaudy <laughs> gaudy bright primary blue worst Cap costume we've got Iron Man in, in red we've got the bright green Hulk yep. oh, there are colours popping everywhere and it feels it feels comic booky and fun and it feels kind of it kind of yeah superior and triumphant and uplifting it's I mean and it plays with elements um, you know of sort of you know conflict within superheroes you know you you do have these sequences where our hero characters are arguing and bickering and don't really like each Mm. other and we're not really sure necessarily if they're going to become the heroes that they should be but Ultimately, at its heart, it is a superhero movie about superheroes being superheroes, about doing things that only superheroes can, and doing so in a bright and heroic and upbeat way, and rescuing people while they're fighting the baddies, but getting a decent amount of punching in, and 
having a fight with each other when they first meet because <laughs> there's a misunderstanding, which yeah. is, you know, one of the most standard superhero tropes imaginable. And it is just, it's, it is interesting actually, I think, that the film can, there's a lot that's, that's modern in tone about the film, and by modern I mean cynical. Um, and I don't mean cynical as in cynical, it's just that um, nowadays it's really difficult to play anything truly earnestly without coming off as old-fashioned or cheesy. Um, and I think we talked about earnestness probably a fair bit when we were doing the first Avenger. And I think actually that's one way in which um, Captain America's own film helps contribute to the tone <laughs> of this one by establishing that here is an earnest character that you can yeah. get behind. Um, but it, particularly given that this is written by Joss Whedon, King of Snark, and it's got Iron Man, Robert Downey Jr. in it. Um, it will be really easy for this film to be um, quite cynical and knowing <laughs> about the idea of superheroes. We might see a version of what that would have been well, when we yes. get to the recommendations. <laughs> if you want to see yeah. the cynical version, <laughs> the cynical of, version this. of this, yeah. Um, but uh, you know, just pretty much throughout the, the the point of this film is and the philosophy of this film is to resolutely be about superheroics and like yeah. this I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This is a world in which superheroes can exist, and when they exist, they do right. And, you know, later films have questioned that, um... And this is something that I am going to, you know, I, we keep saying it, I'm going to repeat something that we talked about on the commentary because I do think this is, an, this is an interesting thing to note that um, with the deleted opening and closing, uh, which sort of, if you haven't seen it, the film was originally going to open with Maria Hill being interviewed by the Security Council mm -hmm. after the event and then the rest of the film is told in flashback. And pivotally, the Maria Hill opening kind of frames it as something has gone badly yeah. wrong, there's been a catastrophe, people have died, heroes have maybe fallen, and it casts this potential yeah. shadow over the film. So you, it, it leaves you spending the film thinking, what if they're not right? Hmm. And you know, ultimately, even with that, that beginning and that ending, it comes to the conclusion that yes, they are, but that it's even raised as a question relies on the film telling the story differently from how the film actually does. Um, and actually, the, you know, the point of this film is that the superheroes are going to be the superheroes, right. and as soon as they are on stage as superheroes, you are cheering for them, and you know that they're in the right. And I think because this film does that, it means that when we move on to Civil War and Winter Soldier, and the ones that get to be a bit more, and Age of Ultron, you know, the ones that get to be a bit more morally ambiguous about it, they've earned the right to do that by first are, showing us the heroes. They're at the, the right points. Yeah. Yeah, and, and what's interesting is, in this in the film's middle act, which is kind of all the helicarrier sequence, 
that is when we put our characters together to snipe at each other mm. because we've got Jocelyn <coughs> doing quippy dialogue and our yeah. characters are going to quip and they're going to fall out. But what's interesting is in every one of those fallings out, you look at those characters and go, oh yeah, but you and your perspective there is kind of essentially right and you and your perspective is kind of essentially right because you're coming at it from a heroic point of view. Mm. The only times when characters are kind of wrong is when... Joss Whedon is showing us, hey, maybe Tony Stark could do with learning a little bit of something mm. from Captain America, and maybe Captain America d- could do with learning a little bit of something from Iron Man. So the whole, they're developing hydro weapons, straight away, Hulk, uh, Bruce Banner and Robert Andy and um, Tony Stark are sceptical of S.H.I.E.L.D., and we bed into Steve, oh yeah, maybe you should be a little bit sceptical of S.H.I.E.L.D., and that's something that Steve learns and will take forward to the Winter Soldier. Cap shows Tony that maybe you can be a little less selfish. Maybe you can put yourself on the line like I would do any time. Yeah, sure, Tony, you're a hero who flies around in your metal suit. But would you actually sacrifice yourself for everyone? Because that's what a true hero would do. And that's what mm. Tony Stark does at the end of the movie. And that decision drives him forward into Iron Man 3 and Avengers Age of Ultron and Civil War. And it's, it's amazing how many things this film sets in motion. Um, but like I said, it does it in a, it does it, it with them all being kind of right and in a very like traditional superhero way. Because Joss Whedon subverts moments and cliches of films. What he doesn't do here is subvert the superhero movie. No. He delivers a traditional superhero movie and a really triumphant one, mm-hmm. like a fist punching. <laughs> I mean, all the, I mean, all even actually now that I think about it, like with the exception of the fight in the forest, but that's okay because that falls under the rules of superheroes meet for the first time and fight because of a misunderstanding. Aside from that, all of the moments when they are kind of sniping at each other and you've got that slight uncertainty over whether it's the right thing, they're not in costume. The point at which they put on their suits and start using their powers and flying around is the point at which they are being unambiguously heroic. You know, they're forced into it when they're on the helicarrier, and then you know it sort of becomes the plan to go and do it. <laughs> and in terms of when he's like put on the suit, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and in terms of a team of six of them, the first time we see the six of them together in suited up in full Avengers mm. mode is in New York in that battle yeah. sequence. Early on, Hulk's not there when they have the fight in the forest. Hawkeye is absent for all of that other stuff, and when Hulk does Hulk out on the helicarrier. Um, that again, that is kind of shown as that is Hulk who has been kind of manipulated by the mind gem, who has been poked and prodded out by Loki and and used as what might be potentially the weapon. Um, and that again is able to lead to the one kind of heroic character defining role for Hulk, like moment for Hulk, which is the that's my secret secret captain. I'm always angry, <laughs> and that so, is one of the great moments in superhero films, I think, because. It finally, it finally, in a way that I had never seen on screen, made a character make sense to me, and also made him fit perfectly into that film. Like it's, Joss Whedon just was kind of like unlocking things left, right, and centre, and going, <laughs> "That's that's why this works." Um, since you mentioned the mind gem, uh, just in case it doesn't make it as one of the salvageable bits of commentary <laughs> recording, we must just place on record the assertion that there is no way that the scepter was intended to be an infinity stone when this film. Was made. <laughs> 
I have we were, to get that out. There. I thought we were going to argue over whether the scepter was actually affecting them because there was some difference. Of there was some difference of opinion. It is, but, but I, is I'm not going to 100 percent make that. So I think that's that's open to interpretation, and I can definitely see that point of view. It's just that I had never taken it that I'd never read it that way, but I can totally see that now that you've said it. But no, the scepter was not supposed to be the marriage. And as as we point out, if it was, that is the first the first occasion in the Marvel Cinematic Universe of Thanos going. My goal is to gather the Infinity Gems together so I can rule the universe. I'm going to give my Infinity Gem to this bloke I've just met so he can go and rule Earth and go and get me another Infinity Gem (laughs) in the form of the Tesseract. It's like, it's a big gamble, isn't it? Here, have one of these things so I can potentially maybe get another. Yeah. Um, Back to the stuff on the Helicarrier. I mean... We can talk the little quips and the jokes and stuff. Because for me, as much as I love the action and the, all of these characters coming together in that final act, I think the reason I place this so high in my superhero rankings is just a bunch of good characters, well, well-written characters already going into this film. And in some cases not. I would say, like The way that Black Widow is elevated in this film from what she was before is incredible. The way they t- turn the Ed Norton Hulk into the Mark Ruffalo Hulk mm-hmm. suddenly becomes such a more interesting character. But they have the, they have a bunch of good characters, they put them all in this confined space, and they make them talk to each other. And they have conversations, and Joss Whedon tells jokes. And, I mean, I always come back to, like, um, Stephen King, I think Stephen King is one of the greatest storytellers, because he understands it's not... It's not always about the concepts. It's like the best Stephen King's books are the ones with the best characters. Like, it's not that complex. And once you get into, like, the mythology of it and going down into the sewers, it's a little bit bit silly. But those kids are great, and he writes the characters so well that it almost doesn't matter. You're way out of my frame of reference here. I'm going to have to trust you on this. Yeah, the two... Not not two big horror guys here. Um, But I was saying the same thing about Lost. The first season of Lost for me is is always going to be the best one because it just created... It understood that for all of these mysteries, they're not going to matter unless you care about the characters. And what Joss Whedon has here is a bunch of characters you like and he just makes them talk to each other. Mm. And even when the talking is kind of to serve a plot function, that's when he can throw in any one of a myriad of gags. So we have Gallagher guy, we have I understood that reference, we have he's adopted... We there's, there's so many in just That's just in the helicarrier sequence. You picked a alone. controversial joke there. <laughs> Which is that? That he's adopted joke. Is what that is, controversial? Why is that controversial? Because people took it as Joss Whedon making fun of people who are adopted. And, uh, you know, no, come on. It's one of the many things that Joss Whedon does, which is not perfect, and in the same like, there's that line, isn't it? I can't remember what the exact phrase is, but it's something like the right look for converts and the left look for traitors yes and so like Joss Whedon being a kind of social justice feminist made a joke that could be seen as being at the expense of adopted people and therefore he is evil okay I think it's very funny yeah um, and I think it's he, a funny because piece. because yeah. it, it, it's not that's not what it's yeah. about the at joke, all the joke is not at the expense of the adopted no the joke is at the, the, expense, is at the expense of Thor, of Thor. Who has yeah. leapt to the defence yeah. of... Yeah. And uh, is furiously backpedalling because he's become embarrassed. Yeah. yeah. Admittedly, if you're an adopted person and you got upset by that joke, it's not my place to tell you you shouldn't have been. Yeah. But at the same time, it doesn't make you an evil person for having written it. 
the quips are pretty solid the whole way through, though. I mean, they do good fish out of water stuff with Cap and Thor. Um, but, I mean, Joss Whedon was born to write Robert Downey Jr. dialogue, wasn't he? <laughs> I mean, especially the first scene where he comes in and he, he's the that guy's playing Gallagher and this and that <laughs> and what's, and like he's just throwing something at everyone, isn't he? Yeah. And he does his, what is it, batten down the missing... <laughs> the main sail or whatever. Main yeah. sail, yeah. yeah. How, does, um, how, does Nick, how does Fury look at this? He turns. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and yeah, to- Tony's thing, it, it never stops being funny, uh, Tony naming something, uh, giving something a nickname, and it like, I think the last one is, oh, what does he call Loki's staff? He, he makes a crack about Loki's staff at some point. I remember him calling uh, Hawkeye Legolas. Because Haw- yeah. Hawkeye Legolas quite late on, but obviously earlier on he's called Loki Reindeer Games, Shakespeare <laughs> in the Park. Yes. Um, yeah, it's just... Yeah, it's pretty good. I mean, was how blessed is Robert Downey Jr. that he got his career renaissance in Iron Man and then was able to get Joss Whedon and Shane Black writing him dialogue in this and <laughs> Iron Man 3. And we were talking on our commentary about what a purple patch this was for Marvel. Yeah. That I mean, I love Captain America the First Avenger more than anyone. But then we go from that, and even if people want to ignore that, we get the Avengers, we get Iron Man 3, and we get the Winter Soldier and blip for thought of that world and he gets cut into the galaxy yeah. um, there's there's nothing in earlier in phase one that matches that and I don't think the more recent stuff for all that I've liked films like Doctor Strange and Ant-Man yeah. there's there's nothing that's quite that concentration of great I mean just I mean just taking the three of them um, Avengers Iron Man 3 Winter Soldier that is three five star films in a row yeah those are three that are definitely in my top five and probably in most people except for the people we talked before about how anyone who misunderstands Iron Man 3 probably doesn't like it what I was saying at the start was I think it's really interesting how well this sets up the stuff going forward so yes this influences the rest of Hollywood but this is okay the Thanos stuff sets up the big MacGuffin so we've now got our MacGuffin in place that's going to lead to Infinity War that's fine but Cap and his scepticism of uh, the, the, the learning to be a little bit more sceptical. We were saying it's, it's so understandable how Cap is fully on Team S.H.I.E.L.D. at the start of this movie. Yeah. It's all he knows about modern day New York. It was founded by his friends Peggy and uh, Howard <laughs> Stark. Founded by the two people he trusts most in yes. the world. And then he has that little bit of scepticism embedded in here. And that basically blows up yeah. into the Winter Soldier. That is what the Winter Soldier becomes. Um, Cap learning to be a little bit less, a little bit less self-centered. Sorry, Iron Man learning to be a little bit less self-centered. Having the traumatic experience at the end of that film, that drives everything that we've seen in Iron Man three. It's it's Iron Man learning that powers don't make the hero because he says that line we picked up in the commentary. Sorry, I know we keep, (laughs) but he says to Cap, uh, everything everything special about you came came out of a bottle. Uh, but which even is wrong as he says know, it like the audience knows it's wrong yeah the audience knows he, it's wrong but on some level he knows it's wrong yeah and again uh, one of the iconic lines comes in that scene as well the genius billionaire playboy philanthropist show it might, that might not actually be the same scene but it's another showdown between Cap and Tony on the helicarrier yeah the amount of the amount of small little bits of dialogue in no, this it film it is, it is the same scene but you know what I mean the amount of little just little bits of dialogue that that t-shirt, genius billionaire playboy <laughs> philanthropist, is everywhere now. Yeah. And like, puny god, and there's just so much we of it. We have a Hulk. 
Yes, uh, I mean, I'm always angry. <laughs> uh, it's it's un it's unending, and I think I think the first act of this film does a good job of catching you up on stuff and going, here's this character, here's that character, here's that character, and um, establishes some interesting relationships. Uh, but it's the second act that is really where everything flies into place. Yeah, and Thor literally flies into place. Yes, yeah. Um, but one of the other things that becomes central in the middle act, um, and the kind of the turning point that drives the that drives the Avengers coming together in the third act, after they are kind of scattered by Loki's plan to unleash the Hulk on the hel- helicarrier. So we've got. Um, Bruce Banner's off in um, Jersey with Harry Dean Stanton, <laughs> who is alive. <laughs> you missed our frantic googling to, to like check whether Harry Dean Stanton was still alive. I've just sworn that Harry Dean Stanton had died. If he died between us recording this and oh releasing God, it, yeah. that will be awful. Well, he will, no, he will never die. Um, I was saying he, he's out in Jersey, so hopefully, when the Miss Marvel movie happens, he will be like her next door neighbour in, in, in that. Um, but yeah, so he's off in Jersey. Thor has fallen down in the big canister. Um, Natasha and um, Clint are kind of making his brain work again. Um, Cap and Tony are like dejected, although still there. And we kind of have to, like, they're all pretty broken. And there has to be a thing that brings them back together. And that is the death of Phil Coulson, who, as, as the first scene when he's introducing this movie points out, we didn't know was Phil Coulson before then. Yeah. We thought his first name was Agent. <laughs> and the word to be honest, that Joss I didn't even remember that his surname was Coulson <laughs> before this. I, va- I remember in this film vaguely going, oh yeah, I, I kind of remember meeting that character before. I think more from the one-shots that he was showing up in mm. than remembering him showing up in Iron Man. We said it when we rewatched Iron Man for the first time. He's in quite a lot of it, mm. but he's just the suit, isn't he? Yeah. yeah. And then Joss Whedon gets his hands on him and throws in the humanising moments with the cards, with being a big fan of Captain America, Mentioning having a hand in divining suit. Yeah. yeah, mentioning the fact that he's a real person with a real name who has a girlfriend. And, and like, friends who was Amy Acker. Yes, who we found out in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is Amy Acker. If I had a girlfriend who was Amy Acker, I wouldn't be dicking around in the start of Jesus. <laughs> um... But then, if if you had Especially a girlfriend, if you, play who, the cello. if you had a girlfriend who was Pepper Potts, would you be flying around in an iron suit all the time? Fair point. Yeah, actually, yeah, yeah, because you'd have the iron suit. Yeah. And we are going to need to have this conversation again. Does Agents of Shield bringing back Coulson undercut that moment for either of you guys? Only if you watch it. Yeah, I mean, we, but James, we've both seen. <laughs> swaths of Agents of Shield. Yeah, Agents of Shield, and I think as much as that character is supposedly alive and out there in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, it doesn't undercut the moment in this film for me. And I'm not sure why, but and, and I, I, I'm not even assuming that he is still dead in the movie universe or whatever. It just doesn't matter. It feels powerful enough in its own right yeah. that I have grown to love Coulson enough in the preceding hour that when he dies, I feel as bad about it as the rest of the Avengers do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it doesn't, like... The fact that he comes back is... It's comic booky. But again, like, the fact that Captain America came back to life in the comics, spoilers for five years ago, uh, that, you know, it doesn't undercut the... No, it's true, and actually, yeah, it's like, there, you know, there are plenty of great comic book deaths that aren't ruined by the fact that they've been undone since, because either you just, you know, you're not reading by the point they come back, or... Um, well, the point the point is that it matters in the moment. Yeah, exactly. And what happens after doesn't ruin that. 
I mean, does, even, does even when you get a death that you know as it's happening isn't going to be permanent. <laughs> like Captain America. Yeah, or, or, or Superman. You know, the death of Superman is still a good story, even though you know that it's <laughs> it's, still, it's still a story. And you I haven't think... listened to our podcast, have you? <laughs> I've listened to it. It was fantastic. Please do more. And I'm sure you will. Um, what I th- what I think though is so great about that is that yes, it's moving, but it's also it's it's a like it's a hero's death. What Coulson does in his dying moments doesn't actually achieve anything, but the fact that he gets to fire the gun yeah. at Loki, <laughs> it uh, gives the audience yeah. uh, an air punch of a moment. Yeah, definitely. And it it feels true to the character that Joss Whedon has established in that film, and. I mean, it's it, the heartbreaking moment when he is stabbed. It's another one of those Joss Whedon like uh, subverting your expectations of what's about to happen. Mm-hmm. I tell you what, as well, when um, when Marvel did the Ultimate Universe, and obviously they did the Ultimates, they decided that the Avengers was a, a stupid name. Well, not yes. necessarily that it was a stupid name. But, you know, they didn't think it worked. Well, <laughs> Mark Miller decided, yeah. didn't he? Because so, what are they avenging? Yeah, so um, they renamed it to the Ultimates. But it's a good job the film didn't go with that, otherwise Coulson's dying line would not have made a whole heap of sense. (laughs) This whole thing wouldn't have worked if they didn't have something to ultimate. (laughs) (laughs) And, I mean, when Tony Stark does get to deliver that, like, grandstanding dialogue to Loki down there, I mean, Loki's just the the perfect scene partner for all of them, isn't he? Um, And I'm going to bring up, I think, my favourite scene in the movie. I've probably said that about six times. But I'm going to bring up my favourite scene in the movie and my personal MVP in terms of the cast. um, Scarlett Johansson is just unbelievably good in this movie. And um, former podcast Caroline Cedar, I think, maybe has said on the podcast, but it's definitely said a bunch of times on Twitter and in her articles and stuff, that... If they can, you know, if in fact she did say on the Iron Fist podcast, she was saying if they can rehabilitate um, Black Widow from the extent that she, from the character she was in Iron Man Two to what she is in the Avengers, then maybe they can rehabilitate a character like Danny Rand. And it just, it's so true. The the work that they do on that character, she is kind of she's kind of cool and kick ass in Iron Man Two, but she's a piece of eye candy. Yeah. Uh, she has that weird like seduction scene with Tony Stark, and that doesn't play quite right. Here, from the opening scene that we first see her, where she is taking down those Russian goons, they talk to her about the things that she'd done in her past. So immediately we're getting a bit of context beyond she's a spy and she's hot and she's cool and she can kick some ass. It's a, it's a Joss Whedon doing, here is a Buffy the Vampire Slayer scene, where mm-hmm. everyone around her is underestimating her. Because she's a woman. But also, it is showing that she had... That's the thing. The film shows... Natasha's vulnerability in almost every scene that she has in that opening scene where she's been interrogated in the scenes where she interacts with um, Bruce Banner's Hulk uh, really bedding that relationship in for Age of Ultron yep James which is going to be the basis of the Marvel Cinematic Universe moving forward <laughs> oh god that's that's my hope for who turns up in Thor Ragnarok <laughs> she saves the day by doing her little Mm-hmm. Strokey thing again. Who is it? Calm him down. Some film Maybe described it as erotic. <laughs> that would be that would be so, so much fun. Oh, please, please let that happen. But I mean, you, you you can really see why, as a result of this film, it was such a no-brainer that they went on and gave Black Widow her own movie. <laughs> it's just, you can really see why they did. That. Oh, she, I'm, 
she is incredible. Steph, you were saying that this was basically this is the reason why Scarlett Johansson is the biggest like well, yeah, action, I mean, I mean, female I mean, action like, star. Speci- in I mean, right even you, you can even pretty much specifically boil it down to that opening scene in the warehouse. Yes. That that scene is where Scarlett Johansson becomes like, the biggest yeah, female it's action star. It's like a little like taster short for here is how you do a Scarlett Johansson action movie. She's yeah. a, she's a kick-ass badass heroine who is sexy but not in a leering at her kind of way. She's se- <laughs> most it's like, of the time. What well, most of the it's time? Not very leering. There are a, there are a couple of been, there are a, a couple yeah. of egregious butt shots, and she definitely. I always do think this for Scarlett Hansen. She could probably zip that cat suit up the whole yeah. way if the costume department warehouse scene. Uh, she could maybe you know have a slightly less loose bra. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, I'm not saying it's not enjoyable, <laughs> but it's also come on. This, we're very you know. tired. We're very tired. <laughs> So, but to go back to my favourite scene, it is the scene where Scarlett Johansson goes in and talks to Loki while he has got himself in the trope of that blockbuster era, has got himself locked up by the heroes, mm-hmm. but that's exactly where he wants to be. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but the, I, I love, again, this is Joss Whedon subverting a moment. James, you were saying, yeah, when saying, you first saw this in the cinema... The first time I saw this, I was watching that scene going, I can't, like, Joss Whedon, how can Joss Whedon have written this? Like, he's supposed to be better than this. And it feels like he's undermining the Black Widow yeah, character there I was well, just, doesn't it? I was just that convinced by it, by the performance and by the writing and the whole setup. Like, but she She's gone in, she is talking to him, she's letting him push all her buttons, because that's what Loki's trying to do, he's trying to push all of their buttons, he's trying to get them to lose their cool, he's trying to get them to turn on each other. I just remembered what it reminds me of, and it's the scene in Buffy where Willow goes to Parker, who, is it Parker? The guy who sleeps with Buffy and then ditches her. Okay, I can't remember, but... Okay, it's in season four, Willow goes to him to, like, tell him off. And he slowly sort of wins her round, and the whole time you're sitting there going like, oh, Willow, don't be so stupid. And then at the end, she reveals that she was just playing him. Mm. Like, she was letting him think he was getting her. It's like, exact same trope. But just... I'm going to go out there and say, as much as I like Alison Hannigan, though, Scarlett Hansen <laughs> is a much better... Yeah. And I'm certain that Tom Hiddleston is a better actor than whoever was playing Parker or... Oh, sure. Whoever that was. Yeah. Um, and in this scene, you have Scarlett Hansen really playing up that vulnerability. She's having her buttons pushed by him. And it reveals to us as an audience member that she does have those vulnerabilities, but also that she's kind of in control of them because it's a sore spot, but it's a, spot, it's a sore spot <laughs> that she can handle being poked in. Mm-hmm. And so she, she de- deals with it all. Stop it. <laughs> she... Uh, um, and the performance is spot on where you you buy entirely that he is that he's really getting to her yeah. we have the Mule and Quinn line of dialogue which again I think that everyone was saying for a good couple of years after this movie came out um, which Joss Whedon snuck in there um, and then we have the reveal where she that you see they say he says oh no I'm you're the people who brought the monster mm-hmm. and she's facing away from the camera and her back so straightens up. Christopher Reeve moment. Yeah, back straightens <laughs> up. She turns around, her face is straight. She goes, so that's so your play. Perfect, the Hulk. Perfect shoulder acting. Yeah, and I, I, I absolutely love it. I think it's two actors on the absolute top of their game and mostly Scarlett Hansen who... It's, cause, it's because it blindsides you. Like, even though, even though you're, you think you're smarter than that as an audience member, it still blindsides you because it's just so well put together. 
<clears throat> can I just make one minor criticism of, of that stuff, though? <laughs> no. I'm really <laughs> fed up of the line read in my ledger because ever since that film, that line has cropped up so often. And it's like every Black Widow comic that's been done since has made some kind of... It's like... It's a okay. quite good metaphor the first time you hear it. <laughs> like, yeah. who, who has a ledger? Yeah. Come on. <laughs> right on my spreadsheet. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to be fair, your pro- the problem there is you're reading Black Widow comics written by people like Mark Wade. <laughs> Mark Wade's a good writer. Yeah, for like old white guys. <laughs> he's a good daredevil writer. If he's got Chris Sandy doing it. Well, there's Black Widow. <laughs> fair point, fair point. And co-writing the story. <laughs> Fair point. Back to the movie. <laughs> Let's talk Loki because we haven't spoken much about him yet. And it's interesting that he is set up as we we know because obviously we know him from Thor already at this point, where he had short rubbish hair and his costume wasn't quite as good. And um we kind of just see him there at the end kind of lashing out because like he couldn't he couldn't be the leader of Asgard. And he felt insecure because his dad wasn't his dad, and like he, see, if you want to criticise anyone for having a go at adoption, this is Loki becomes a villain because he finds out he's adopted. That's, yeah, blame you know. Ken Branagh. <laughs> yeah. We blame him, Kenneth Branagh for this. No, no but he, you know, you have to. You have to yeah, he's the director. He's got he, yeah. the buck stops with him. It's the opposite from comics. Yeah. The writer is not important. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's important, you guys, in all of the mediums. We, we're going to name all of them. Um, but yeah, so Loki is, is is kind of set up, and he comes in here as, I think, a fantastic villain, and so fantastic because he is undermined kind of by the way the story is set up, that he's a pawn for Thanos. We don't know his Thanos yet, but he is a pawn. He's been sent to get something, and in return he gets to rule over this unimportant kingdom. Yeah. Um, and he, he kind of has a plan that we, we were saying this during the commentary it's it's based on a lot of supposition of hopefully all these Avengers will gather into the same place, hopefully they will bring the Hulk and yeah. hope, hopefully the people that I've left doing my work on the portal <laughs> down on Earth are going to be able hopefully, to achieve that hopefully and, my brother and, and won't abduct me mid yeah, hopefully they won't build in a, a back door and yeah, yeah. well that, and that's the one assumption that he makes that proves out proves to be bad <laughs> the, again, the one of the that, that's for me the moment that always speaks to the power of this movie the fact that it took me four or five viewings of this film to realise they just talked away the fact that they are able to close the portal with a line of dialogue where Eric Selvig goes oh yes I kind of I think in the back of my mind I must have built in this <laughs> this back door to the thing and you're like okay that's dumb but if it's taken me this long to notice it means I was enjoying everything else around it so much mm-hmm. that it doesn't matter and I think the same thing with Loki's plan who gives a crap what Loki's plan is because he's gonna he's gonna be having some banter with um, Thor and Black Widow and Nick Fury and like it just and 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 um, Iron like, Man and he's going to get the crap beaten out of him I by mean, Hulk every interaction he has with another the, character is great but he's also an intimidating villain the I mean, thing about the team sort of turning on S.H.I.E.L.D. because they're doing Hydra experiments and stuff like that that feels similarly incidental in that it kind of disappears after mm. the middle act because all it needs to do is get them to the point of saying okay screw S.H.I.E.L.D. let's sort this out on our own we trust each other more than we trust S.H.I.E.L.D. yeah exactly like that's all it needs to do so it's kind of it's a very weak thread throughout the first two acts, and then it disappears. From and the film, I, 
it sort of I think because it absolves Fury of responsibility mm. because Fury, yeah, yeah. yeah, they're kind of like, yeah, we didn't really want to do this. Our our plan is still you guys. Um, whether or not you believe that, because it's Fury, uh, <laughs> I believe Fury. I do. I'm I'm seeing Fury. He turned up on the farm and he didn't have to. <laughs> um, I do like that line. Uh, I'm sorry, Nick. What were you lying? Um, <laughs> but with uh, with Loki, it's kind of because the film does sort of try to build a full-on plan based around conquest for Loki, but it's like Loki's the god of mischief, and you could have really just got away with. Loki's around and wants to fuck shit up a bit. But and I Some think... men just want to watch the world burn. <laughs> I don't know who said that. But, <laughs> um, but the film itself kind of does do that. That's kind of what yeah, the film I mean, does. That's, that's, what, that's ultimately what the effect ends yes. up seeing. Yeah. But the film does sort of try to have the facade of there being a serious plan under all of it. And actually it would kind of just be better if it didn't even try. I mean, and basically it's the, it's the Thanos stuff, isn't it? Yeah. And it's, it's the Thanos is lending the Chitauri, we're opening up the universe now, we're doing all this stuff, and it is the Marvel bedding down for stuff in the future. If this was the last film in the Marvel franchise that the, the Phase 1 built to this film and then we end, then none of that other stuff would have been in there. Loki would have been coming down to just yeah, yeah. just destroy the Earth and cause mischief yeah. and, anoint, and piss off his brother and, like show how awesome he was by taking out Earth's mightiest heroes um, and that kind of is what the film is it just happens that there's the other context around that yeah. you can wave hand at and the reason it is able to succeed is because and we've said Tom Hiddleston it's a little bit weird watching him now because of the context of the past year or so I think we spoke about this on our uh, <laughs> Patreon exclusive for Ragnarok discussion which we believe the recording of which did actually survive but you, you, again you'll so know was, this <laughs> so it, was, it was weeks ago by the time yeah. you heard this but yeah the, the Hiddleston is a bit weird the, his, yeah. his PR over the past year has not been great but he's, he's all, all of a sudden when now when he's in something you're not just instantly oh that's Tom Hiddleston he's a really good actor you're not he's super excited there's a whole bunch of other baggage going yeah yeah. I don't think it's insurmountable like baggage though. Cruise. I don't think it's, I don't <laughs> no, think it's, it's quite that level. No. <laughs> <laughs> he had a smooch with Taylor Swift and made a bad bad speech at the Golden Globes. He can get over that. Um, but Tom Hiddleston is really, really fantastic in this film because he is so often having to undercut himself. He's having to be the intimidating, terrifying villain and he's also having to be someone who could in any conceivable fight be disposed of within a few minutes by any of the individual <laughs> Avengers. He has to be the one who's causing chaos and doing the nonsense that gets them running off in different directions and splintering. There is a, there's a really nice um, mixture, actually, because, you know, ultimately he is quite a pathetic villain. He's a, he's a bit of a crap excuse for a villain yeah. when it comes to all of the points where it matters. Um but he has several moments where he crows and is smug and superior. But in almost all of those instances, he's wrong to be that way <laughs> because he's misjudged that situation. Yeah. And either he's about to get punched in the face or Black Widow's about to yeah. turn round and, you know. The one moment that I think flies in the face of that, and I think it's perfect that it's Thor. Um, 
We said there's a moment where he's always he's doing his phasing, and we said it's such it's such a trope. Yeah. But already at this point, within with, after Thor to get to this, where Thor charges at Loki. Oh, that's not actually Loki. He's phased. He's behind you, and Thor has been locked in the thing. And as I said in our commentary, oh Thor, what big muscles, but what a tiny well, brain. That's kind of the point, isn't it? <laughs> Loki knows how to deal with Thor because yes. he's grown up with yeah. him and he's his brother <laughs> and Loki's arrogance is to assume that all of the other superheroes are, are just as, like are as easy to manipulate yes <laughs> so he thinks that he can come down and manipulate them and mess with them but actually what happens is no because they're all different from them. and that doesn't mean that they're all better than Thor it just means that specifically Loki this, doesn't this know them I the way he it's like, it's like Ultron Ultron knows Tony Stark yeah now, like now you've said that I think maybe that's the thing that that Loki has that basically no other MCU villain has, which is that he has a character flaw that is his undoing, as opposed to he's evil so he gets beaten. Uh, yeah, and that's actually, I mean, all of the best, all of the best villains, really. Yeah, like I think that applies to the Kingpin in Daredevil as well. Yeah, and it's the it's the classic Doctor Octopus thing, is that the arrogance is his yeah. undoing. Who it doesn't um, apply to, of course, is Dan- Daniel Brawl's Baron Zemo, who I think avoids the top tier just because he's so underplayed, because he's so he feels incidental to the final act, even yeah. though it is his big master plan. He d- his flaw is that he doesn't want to win, like yeah. ultimately yeah. like, that character. Yeah, or, you he's, know, the, he's got an ambition that is you know small enough yeah. that yeah. he, he that actually succeeds. Yeah. Yeah. Or you know the, the the greatest screen villain of all time, Wiley Coyote. it was a written hard and fast rule that he could only ever come to harm by virtue of his own doom Mm -hmm. and that's that's what makes a great not not even necessarily always a great villain but the villain that you can really root for to get beaten yes Uh, you can enjoy them when they're you can enjoy them being flung into the ground repeatedly by a giant green monster (laughs) yeah absolutely Um, but but equally with Loki I mean I've, I've talked before about how like um I do think that the, you get the point at which he kills Coulson and that's the point at which he's being full on nasty and actually mm. it's kind of incongruous with almost everything else we see from Loki Loki getting bashed into the ground by the Hulk is a is a much better indicator or, or Loki actually getting little moments like the moments with Thor or when, he's, when Thor says listen and Iron Man comes and punches him away and Loki goes I'm listening mm. you know those are the Loki moments. It's a combination of secretly you sneakily have this kind of slight regard for him, and that's why he's so popular because he's charismatic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you can enjoy him being quite pathetic and failing. The moment where he kills Coulson is the moment where, to me, he feels like he's a proper, full-on, horrible, evil villain. And I want to see mm. him punished. What's interesting though is that is the point in the movie where Loki is winning, and it's also the moment that I spoke about with Thor. Where, where it's just, that comes just after that Thor goes through yeah. Thor tries to bash the hammer well first of all Joss Whedon draws attention to the moment and goes you always fall for that trick which yeah. is great if you're going to use a trope call attention to it um, like but then it. Thor smashes on the thing Loki does an evil little grin and it's it's this wonderful moment where Thor is like where Loki's like I've beaten Thor at this moment do you know what I might just be able to kill him as well and it's his full evil bastardness. Mm-hmm. We hate him at that moment. But he's, he's at his most triumphant moment. But why the Coulson death works so well is because it is the moment that puts, up, it puts the villain at his most ascendant. But it's also the moment that brings together our heroes to take him down. 
and that's that's just a perfectly yeah, like constructed. If, if it plot hadn't point. killed Coulson, maybe they would have kept bickering between themselves and not found a common ground to defeat mm. him. But he also wouldn't have had his biggest achievements in the film yeah. at that point either. It's yeah, it's a, it's a really really smart moment. But hang on, so if Loki hadn't killed Coulson um, and the Avengers hadn't come together. That would probably also mean there'd be no agents of Shield. <laughs> so really, it would also mean that Agent Coulson's trading cards remained undipped in blood. Yes, I, I am so not cool with that. I understand Nick Fury's motivation, but they were vintage, you guys. Nineteen forties yeah. trading cards. Coulson, I know he wanted some, the the Avengers to have something to avenge. <laughs> But he, I, I just hope that it was like cleanable. Yeah. Do you think they could wipe the blood off? No, no I, I mean, don't. He either. didn't have to use the actual cards to do. He could have used replicas. They've lost their value at that point, haven't yeah. they? Mm. Maybe what Coulson meant was that what needed to be avenged was the fact that Nick Fury bloodied his cards. Yeah. He could see it coming. Yeah. Agents of Shield was going to deal with anything. <laughs> well, in fact, he, yeah, because what happens is we don't actually see it, but literally when Fury goes over to talk to him, he immediately takes the cards out of his. Uh, pocket. I oh, know because they're in his locker. He's already locker. taken them out of his locker because his plan is for Coulson to get stabbed by Loki, and so <laughs> he quickly dashes over, dips the cards in Coulson's blood, and Coulson's like, "Hey, I want them to avenge this." Now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's definitely what happened. That's, that's not dark. what happens when you're dark discussing a film at five to one in the morning. <laughs> Um, we should we should probably start to draw this to a close. Um, is there anything else that you guys particularly want to draw attention to, there particularly is liking in this film? Yeah, one thing that we again mentioned on the possibly lost part of the commentary. Um, I'm a massive fan of the way they introduce Iron Man in this film, which is to have him underwater. Because because I just think it's like it would have been really easy to have done Iron Man flying through the air or putting on a suit or you know some cool mechanised thing like when the top of Stark Tower removes his suit piece by piece but actually Joss Whedon found something that we hadn't seen from Iron Man before which was him sort of quite still and slow and underwater mm. like it's just a really smart image I thought Seb anything you particularly want to draw attention to? Um, it'd probably only be things that are similarly that we talked about on the commentary so the thing about this film is that it's sort of it's got such importance in the great scheme of things that it feels like however long we sit here and talk about we it, won't have done we it won't have done it justice. No. Um, and, and short of sitting there and going through the entire film as it plays <laughs> out and remarking on everything as it happens... Who would do such a thing? Um, you know, there's no real way to add a cover. I mean, I think that is the sort of... You know, whether it's my personal favourite superhero film, and it isn't quite... Um, and there are now several MCU films that I think I'd rather re-watch over it. But I think that's partly just because, you know, this is, obviously now this has become a Christmas film that's on TV because it's old enough to now be on TV quite a lot. <laughs> um, you know, I have seen sections of this film so many times. It's Pretty a, sure it's it, been on Netflix for like four or five yeah, years it, it's part of the cultural furniture now. Um, and so... When, but when Winter Soldier or Civil War or Guardians of the Galaxy happens to be on, I'm more likely to, you know, react to that kind of a bit more and, and to be fair, find a I bit think more to. Like, me, I just feel I feel like this is so over familiar now that it's hard to look on it as a favourite as such. 
but it's uh, you know as I say I just you can't shake how me, it felt to see it for the first time for me it's like up it there is. with like Terminator 2 and Aliens and stuff in like for a, for a genre yeah. like sci-fi action film is about as good as it gets yeah I I mean I, I'm it is my favourite superhero film um, and yeah the, the difference is Seb I would if you put me down in front of my box sets and say you can only watch one of these now I would say The Avengers and you say you can only watch one of these forever more I would say yeah The Avengers that's that's the one I want it's my favourite and I mean you, you can look at it in the context of Hollywood as we have we can look at it in the context of superhero movies we can look at it in the context of just the Marvel Cinematic Universe it's hugely important to big budget filmmaking mm. um, across all and television as well we now have TV cinematic universes <laughs> we have Flash and Arrow and Supergirl and Legends of Tomorrow because of the Avengers we have Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. we have a Daredevil in terms of superheroes this changed everything on the big mm. screen and yes it was building it, it was like the first Iron Man's important because it makes this a possibility but this is the fulcrum of I think superhero movies you have you know, your, your key texts, when looking back, you're going Superman, you're going uh, Batman 89, you're going uh, Spider-Man and X-Men at the start of the 2000s, and then this. And because we are in the middle of the superhero boom, this for me is, I think, that this this is the key superhero text that I would say. This this is, this and Superman are the two that I think you yeah, have to... It's certainly the one where, like, Fox went, well, we've got the X-Men, can we do... The same sort of yeah. thing with that. Warner and Brothers did. DC, when we've got Batman and Superman, can we do the same sort of thing with that? And then outside of superheroes, it happened as well. Right, even Sony went, well, let's get some of that action too, even though we've only got Spider-Man. But, but just for me, on a, on a purely looking at the film, on its own merits, it is filled with like really well-drawn characters, um, rich, like constantly rewarding dialogue, um, the action, I think the third act action scene, we didn't even mention the middle act action scene, which is really great when the helicarrier has been destroyed and Thor is fighting Hulk, which, good God, if the whole world didn't go mad for the prospect of seeing that again a couple of weeks ago. Um, um, the, the action in that, third, in that third act is, for me, a high point of, um, of kind of like 21st century movie making. I think, like... I love some of the stuff that Justin Lin did in the Fast and Furious movies, particularly <laughs> Fast Five. Um, but for me, the the Battle of New York is the single high point. And I could sit down and watch this movie time and time again. And I think it, it does. It comes down to it's popping on all levels. The action is great. The dialogue is great. The characters are great. And it is the centrepiece of this Marvel Cinematic Universe that I have bought into. There's no two ways about it. I've bought, I've bought into it. I said this on the commentary. I don't think we'd be doing this podcast right now if it wasn't for the Avengers. Like the first time I ever saw this in a cinema, it was at a press screening in Leicester Square, which, I mean, what a privilege to have that experience. I, for a first I was scene. at that screening as well. That was the one where they filled up an entire multi-screen cinema with people who wanted to see it, wasn't it? There was like, yeah, there were screenings in different levels in the view on Leicester yeah. Square. Yeah. Uh, and I remember going outside and just nerdily, like, speaking to people like, oh my God, and that bit, and that bit, and that bit. And I was going into this film expecting 
that Joss Whedon was going to subvert the whole superhero genre, that there was going to be a twist, that maybe the Hulk was the villain, maybe Maria Hill was the villain, maybe Red Skull was going to come back, maybe this, maybe Fin Fang Foom was the Chitauri thing. <laughs> what was the twist that was going to come? And in the end, it ends up being a pretty by-the-numbers superhero movie, straight back. but just executes everything at the highest level. And... Um, yeah, I I love this movie so much. There's there's other superhero movies that come close, um, but I I I personally would sit down and watch I mean, this again tomorrow. Because yeah, I, think it's, <laughs> I watched it twice today and I'm fine with it. <laughs> it's you know I mean there's there's all kinds of you know superhero movies with twists that we love. You know whether that's Guardians or Iron Man three. Or the Nolan Batman films, some of them, in <laughs> case. Or, you know, films that do something interesting or different with the concept of what a superhero film can be. But really, when you look at the uh, texts of the genre, you're looking, you are, as you said before, you're, you're looking really at Superman. And while X Men slightly preceded it, I would say Spider Man for the this. cultural impact, and then this. And maybe and the those, Dark Knight, I would say maybe. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, I mean, I think the Dark Knight is the peak of films that the do something is, a bit different and yeah, interesting. Yeah, possibly. And those are three films that just take the the purest concept of what superheroes are and what the superhero genre should be and what it should be about, and they play them completely straight and uncynically. And what does that? I mean, you know, and some of you listening might disagree that those three are the ones, but what does that tell you about really what 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 we want to see out of superhero films? <laughs> we just want to see superhero films that are superhero films and are not ashamed of that fact. Yeah, yeah, and and I mean that's not to say that some of those other ones aren't massively enjoyable. Of course, yeah. But when it comes back like, to yeah. the core, of but the point you, is, you don't have to do something a twist on it in the modern age for it to yeah. be good you just have to be as good as Joss Whedon yeah <laughs> <laughs> which is something that many people have tried and failed to do I mean Joss Whedon the next time tried and failed <laughs> um, but the point is when a, when a superhero concept or film or whatever fails and it has just been trying to do superheroes straight it's not a flaw it's not an inherent flaw in the genre because this film shows that actually you can be the best in the genre by just taking these heroes and these characters that we love and doing them exactly as they were conceived and how they are supposed to be. And I think this is probably a superhero film that a... I mean, I'm, I'm, I, they've broken... This, this happens quite often, but I think this is a superhero film, and particularly the Marvel film, that maybe some of your sniffier film critics who don't normally like this kind of stuff can look at this and go, do you know what, actually... The action filmmaking is coherent and it's and it's nice to look at and it's in, and it's enjoyable and it's fun. But also the dialogue is strong and the characters are great. And you know when you've just got like two characters like uh, Tony Stark and Bruce Banner in a room talking science stuff and just bouncing off each <laughs> other, uh, or just you've got Tony Stark and um, Steve Rogers having an ideological clash with each other, where both actors are delivering good performances. It's not overcomplicated by by comic booky kind of nonsense, which sometimes does happen in films that are trying to play comic book superhero stuff story. This keeps everything fairly simple. It's just characters bouncing off each other, and the villain's plan is to get the Avengers to turn on each other, and so that means we just watch them chat. 
in the, for an hour in the middle of the movie, and it works. I mean, they're, they're on a helicarrier for the bulk of this movie, which should not, which should be pretty mundane. But the scenes are written <laughs> to your, such a for your flying aircraft. I was going to say the point is they're not mundane because they're on a flipping helicarrier. Yeah. Okay, fair. <laughs> I mean, if there was anything that you know. Some sums this movie up. It's the fact that a load of it takes place on a helicarrier. <laughs> That's more exciting for you two than it would be for me, though. <laughs> um, okay, so that was the Avengers, and what an enjoyable we got there. <laughs> what an enjoyable experience it was to say that we, for all our technological woes, it was still great to chat about the Avengers for four or five hours tonight. <laughs> I thoroughly enjoyed it. But you guys. Um, and this is something I'm very much looking forward to. What are you going to recommend that I read based on the Avengers? Sam? Um, yeah, so I think, because, yeah, we, we sort of haven't prepared two separate recommendations for this, but it means that what you can do is you can go and read one 12-issue thing. Or is it 13, the first volume? I think it might be 13, actually, yeah. um, But it's two arcs making one long arc. Um, you should go and read the first volume of... Um, the Ultimates by Mark Miller and Brian Hitch, which obviously you've heard lots about. We've referenced it loads on the podcast before. And it so, is for anyone who hasn't listened to our previous episodes, you have consistently said that the Marvel Cinematic Universe owes more to the Ultimate line almost than it does to the certainly in phase one. Of it, in phase yeah. one, anyway. And the thing about the Ultimates is that it's. I mean, it is very easy to. Um, pick on the, the negatives and, and I think there are more at the time that it came out you can't really under, uh, you can't really overstate how big the impact of it was because it was a it was a it was a reinvention of the concept and it was a reinvention it, of it reads like um, a modern like cinematic treatment of yeah. the Avengers concepts Totally, but right. it was happening in 2001, so you know the only movie uh, of note that you'd had recently at that point was X-Men and Spider-Man yeah. was on the so way. So how fast did they get yeah, to this after they did Ultimate Spider-Man, which was the one that launched the line? It was about, yes, Ultimate Spider-Man launched the line in 2000, and Ultimate X-Men followed very quickly, and I think Ultimate's debuted in 2001. I think it, it was it was about a year to 18 months after Ultimate Spider-Man had started. Couldn't, couldn't Marvel Comics do with something invigorating like that right now? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, now, so at the time, you know, it was pretty universally acclaimed. Um, it's very influential, it, and it does have a huge influence on these movies. But it's a Mark Miller comic, and it's an early two thousands comic, um, and it has a lot more cynicism and unpleasantness in it. And I, I've, I've, I'm sure I've said this before. I feel like what the MCU has done is to take the... The best of that. The best of that, and to, 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 to put some heart in it, and to get to rid go of about the some of the kind of, like, yeah, concepts. The, and what really sort of exemplifies that is Captain America in the... Because, like, Captain America in The Ultimates has been reinvented as a kind of... Ultra it, was, it was Bush-era politics stuff, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. And, like, as, on the surface of it, that's a really interesting way I mean, to treat Captain yeah, America. Yeah, he's not. It's not. It's not that it's, it's just not a entirely, terrible yeah. take, um, and it's not that he's a wholly unsympathetic. Yeah, that's character. the thing. He's not entirely unsympathetic, but at the it same does. Time, it does. It does something that the movies haven't really explored, which is him coming to terms with his place in the present day yeah. compared with having grown up in the nineteen forties. Um, but basically, nobody in the Ultimates is likable, right? Okay, with the possibility, no Thor. 
Thor is like Thor is great in the Ultimates. Um, yeah, it, Thor is very different in the Ultimates from how he is in the film. It's probably the biggest difference. Stark is uh, similar Stark in some is, ways. Stark is but, very close. I think the but without version the, of Stark is very influenced by the Ultimates yeah. version. But only because the comics version was still sort of stuck in the eighties. Yeah, what it really—I mean, what, the, what it really does, and what what I think the movies really take is—it's an attempt to take these superhero characters and these concepts and to see how they would work in a functionally realistic world. Right. So when Iron Man takes off in his suit, he flies out of a hangar, and he has engineers helping him get into his suit and that kind <laughs> of thing. Um, and you know, and the plot lines do deal a lot more with the kind of character interactions. You know, at, at a time when, for that kind of thing, um, you know, it wasn't that it, it wasn't necessarily how they would have approached it. You know, and you do get things like a domestic abuse storyline with um, Hank Pym. Handled with all the grace you would expect, Mark. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's a weird one because I mean, you could read it and absolutely love it, and I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't say, oh, you shouldn't love it, because there's there's a lot to really like well, about everyone, it. At the time, everyone did love it. Yeah, and actually, you you read it back, and in both Ultimates, and especially in Ultimates 2, which is not what we're going to get you to read this time, there were great ideas, and there were great moments, because, as we've said many times before, Mark Miller is great at great ideas and great moments. What he's not great at is warmth and heart, and Ultimates <laughs> does not have any yeah. warmth. What Mark heart. Miller considers to be sort of <laughs> optimistic and hopeful is very different to what most people yeah. consider optimistic. But and hopeful. if you're if you're in any way interested in, as the conceit of this podcast is, <laughs> discovering the comics behind the movies, then you <laughs> have to read Ultimates. I would say I am vaguely interested in that idea. <laughs> yeah. Um, so. Yeah, I'm going to be really interested to see, finally, what you make of it. It almost feels like this podcast has been building up to reading <laughs> I was going to say, there have been a lot of times we could have recommended Ultimates, but we didn't, because it because fits it too to perfectly with this. this. At the yeah. same time, like I just want to say very quickly, have we ever got you to read Joss Whedon's X-Men? Or no, I'm looking it? forward to when that happens. Yeah, so like, there's an argument that you could read it now. But I think it's more important to read the entire volume. It depends, because we have a lot of X-Men films, so I'm sure there must be an opportunity to... Yeah, but I mean, this is Joss Whedon writing a superhero team, and he wrote Astonishing X-Men immediately before... Do it after after Doctor Horrible. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's me just trying to poke Doctor Horrible a little bit sooner. (laughs) We are going to do a sing-along pod, I warn all our listeners at that point. I mean, I would say if anyone else is interested in reading some comics, then... Yeah, just just reading. Yeah, X Men is like my for anyone who saw Avengers and wanted to read comics. My standard recommendations were read Ultimates Volume One and read Joss Whedon's X Men Volume One because those are the two things that inform this movie in various ways. Hey, we'll see. Maybe I will read them both. (laughs) We'll see. I'm promising nothing. But I have to say, like that, that, those recommendations are ones that sometimes you recommend me stuff, and I don't really know a huge a lot about it, and maybe it'll take me a while to read it. But then when I read it, I love it or whatever. Those are comics that I just want to. I would. I just want to go and read them. So mm-hmm. I, I can't imagine that it will be too much of a <laughs> too much of a trouble. It won't be tank girl. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you have got weeks before you can read them. Because yes, that's it as well. We've got. I've got. I've got all the time <laughs> in the world. Um, okay, but we'll move on now to our final section, which is the pitch. And this week, um, 
we kind of think that we can't re-record our commentary on the Avengers now because we've done this podcast, we've done the commentary, we would we would have nothing left to say uh, that we haven't said already, and it would kind of come out off sounding a bit, a little bit forced and awkward. So what I thought, a bit like Age of Ultron. <laughs> so what I thought I would do is get Seb and James to pitch me on what our next commentary should be so we will still deliver a commentary for our patreon listeners and obviously you'll all be able to uh, access that if you like contribute to our patreon for one month and we'll let you know when it goes up but it Seb, probably won't be for several months because we'll have to find a time to do it but... maybe we'll be able to do it over skype at some point instead uh, rather than in person but guys um i'm gonna ask you now to pitch me what our next commentary should be i mean we've got a, a wealth of uh, of films to choose from um James, I'll let you go first. What should we, what should we do on the podcast? I would like us to do a commentary for Amazing Spider-Man 2, and the, the twist <laughs> is, we'll have a bell that will ring every time they do something that is wrong. <laughs> Can our listeners also, yeah, hear if the you bell? Write in, if you write in and tell us the number of times you think the bell will ring, we'll give you your Patreon money back for the month. <laughs> <laughs> That is a, I mean, that's a compelling argument for Amazing <laughs> Spider-Man 2. I'm not looking forward to getting to that on the podcast. I am, but for the wrong reasons. I still remember the amount of tweets I got after we did the Amazing Spider-Man. People were like, Joe, you got so angry. And I was like, I, just, I think it was that I wasn't expecting it. But yeah, I had a, had a big old rant. That is the anti-Avengers as far as this, it goes on this mm-hmm. podcast. Seb, what do you reckon? Amazing Spider-Man 2 or maybe something we'd like? I mean, I'm surprised you didn't say Man of Steel just to make me watch Man of Steel again. Um, <laughs> We'd invite Reese back for you to argue with. <laughs> no, I actually... remember I snuck out of watching Man of Steel again, so I'm not keen to do it myself. Yeah, and actually, now that I uh, think of it, although it's probably also one that you're not that keen on, I'm almost tempted to say Superman Returns would be a quite <laughs> interesting one. Uh, but I think if it can't be Avengers... Um, looking at films that we haven't yet done that are major enough that I think everyone would be interested enough to hear because I can't really because the runner up in the vote was Spider Man Two, wasn't it? But then we because it we've, did, we've done that already. We've done that. We've done an time, episode yeah. on that. Um, I think the next big one that we'll hit that would be worthy of a commentary is probably going to be Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, mm. Yeah, but. I mean, as well. Do you gonna... think if, if there's a more amusing suggestion than that? I don't know. I mean, that's it's not. It's a pretty good shout because we'll have we'll probably be riding high on Guardians of the Galaxy two at that point. We might have a little bit more context to bring to it post Guardians of the Galaxy two that we didn't have now. Maybe. I also think as well. I mean, un- unlike Avengers, where we did really need to do a standard episode. I feel like we've talked about Guardians of the Galaxy so much in the last two and a half <laughs> years that we could get away with not doing a standard episode on it and just do a commentary. I mean, the alternative is, we at some point we're going to have to watch Barbed Wire. <laughs> and if there's a reason for us to do... Like, I guarantee no one's done a commentary for Barbed Wire before. Listen, I think we should reward our listeners. We should give them something similar to what the Avengers would have been. And if that's three guys gushing over a Marvel movie that is... Doing some really delightful things at quite high frequency. Guardians, Guardians of the Galaxy might be that film, <laughs> and it would probably it'd be a nice, nice just period of time because we'll 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 do Iron Man three and the Winter Soldier, and then we'll get to uh, then, we'll, then we'll get to Guardians of the Galaxy, won't we? Yeah. So it it's, hopefully won't be too long for our listeners to wait for our commentary, but um, 
Yeah, I think I think Guardians of the Galaxy is a good call. I can't I can't do Amazing Spider-Man two. <laughs> Maybe I'll do one on my own. <laughs> Please, yes. Yeah, we'll put that out as yeah. a Patreon exclusive. You can just sit there. Why don't you? Don't don't. Just sit there and watch Amazing Spider-Man 2 ring the bell every time something bad happens and we will release that. We'll just release the okay, bell. Okay, I'm, I'm legitimately going to do that. Just be two hours of I'm bells chronic. ringing. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yes, just to reiterate, listeners, I am going to try my best to try and edit what we did record on the Avengers in some kind of listenable form and we'll stick that up on Patreon if it is in any way listenable. Because we did talk a, a lot about the movie and go, oh, look at that cool thing that's happening right now that's fun and James had little comic book references like actually this first this I is made, a reference to Journey into Mystery yeah Journey into Mystery 112 yeah uh, so that was so that was that was what you what you could have heard but we will we will now deliver you a Guardians of the Galaxy uh, Cinematic Universe commentary when we get around to that film on the podcast and it should it will be this year though yeah, yeah. it will be this and, year and guaranteed we'll record that. it on it different device from your computer in fact we will have multiple devices we've recorded this podcast now on three different devices just in case <laughs> <laughs> fool us once audacity fool us once <laughs> okay but that is it for this week's show um, if you've been enjoying the show then please just subscribe on iTunes Stitcher Player FM or your podcast app of choice and you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash cinematic universe which of course is where you'll be able to find all of this bonus stuff that we're doing um, you can get in touch on Facebook, on Twitter at CU underscore podcast, or you can send us an email to cinematicuniversepod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. He says, welcome to the frickin' Guardians of the Galaxy. Only, he didn't use frickin'. Cinematic Universe returns next week with Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 2. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at. Like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824.